When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson. In fact, I got a, a note from a, a wonderful sister I met a few months ago saying that how grateful she was whenever I called you Unshaken Saints. As she said, it just reminds me of who I am and who I'm trying to become. And so, yes, all of you Unshaken Saints out there, so glad that we could join together for Scripture study this week. In fact, no matter where you are on the spectrum between shaken and unshaken, I can't think of a better way to fortify our faith or to stabilize our spirituality than to spend time with God in His Word, uh, to build upon the rock of our Redeemer, uh, to dig deep and to sink in those, those footings so that we have feet of faith to stand on, so that no matter what the winds of doctrine uh, or the, the crashing waves of adversity, no matter what comes, we'll be able to withstand the storm. We're going to see some examples of storms today uh, and the way the Lord allows us to rise above them. But I do pray that our time spent in Scripture is, is a blessing to us all, that it does strengthen us and stabilize us, uh, that it helps us move ever closer to the direction of being truly and permanently unshaken. Now, this week's material, this week's Scripture study, we're going to be kind of jumping all over the place. We'll be in Matthew 14, in Mark 6, in John 5 and 6. We'll bring in a little Luke whenever we can. But I am glad we're bringing in John. It's been a while since we've spent time with him. And, oh, his book is such a masterpiece, although it doesn't always fit in with the same storyline that we see in the Synoptic Gospels. To make sense of what we're going to do today, we're actually going to split John in half and start with John 5 and end with John 6 and then squeeze in the Matthew, Mark, Luke in between. Sound, sound okay? We'll do kind of bookends with the book of John. And we're going to be studying five main stories. We're going to start with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Beautiful, beautiful miracle. And some of the conversation Jesus has with the Jews in the aftermath. Then we will see the death of John the Baptist, which is a devastating a devastating story for Jesus, and, and hopefully we, we understand where, what he's feeling about it and feel some of that ourselves. That will be kind of the first half of this week's material. And then for the second half, we'll cover these other three incredible stories. The multiplying of the loaves and the fishes, a story everyone knows and loves. The walking on the water, which is just incredible with some of the lessons that it teaches us. And then we'll end this week's material with the Bread of Life discourse that Jesus teaches through the bulk of John chapter 6, and it is a masterpiece. Uh, what, he, what he says, uh, who he portrays himself to be, it's, it's a turning point in the Savior's ministry, also a turning point in who exactly is going to, going to be following him from this point forward. So as we are deciding whether or not to follow Jesus, uh, the, the lessons that we'll learn this week, I hope will point us in the direction of fully and faithfully following him. So let's dive in. Okay, John chapter 5 is where we'll start. And in verse 1, he sets the stage. After this, and what's the this? If you go back to the end of John chapter 4, it's the healing of the nobleman's son. Okay, 
It's John's version, or at least it's a similar miracle to what we saw of the healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, Two different stories, but with a lot of similarities. Anyway, after that happened, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the fact he's going up to Jerusalem would suggest that is this one of the three pilgrimage feasts that uh, all practicing Jewish men are supposed to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. That's a possibility, but it's interesting that he simply calls it a feast of the Jews and doesn't tell us what it is. And that's unlike John. John typically is very clear on, on timetable and chronology and when, at what time of year or during which Jewish festival are certain things taking place. Now, throughout history, scholars have divided on this one of exactly what feast is this. Some have said, well, it's got to be Passover because that's the main feast. And that's when they they all come up to Jerusalem. And other scholars have pushed back and said, yeah, but John's really careful to mention the Passovers whenever they come. The Passover when he cleanses the temple. The Passover, actually, that we'll see today uh, in John chapter 6 as they're preparing for it. And then the Passover at the end of Christ's ministry, uh, the Last Supper. And so is it, could this be the, the Passover? I don't, I don't know. Uh, some have suggested, well, it, perhaps since John is so clear about the feast days and the festivals, maybe he has a purpose for being vague this time. And he just wants this miracle that we're about to see, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, to fit into any feast you could think of. Keep it vague so that it's not, it doesn't seem to connect to a single specific time of year or, or something that the Jews are trying to celebrate or commemorate. No, these kinds of healings, these miracles where the Savior just oh, picks you up and puts you on your feet, that can happen at any time, any feast day, any festival day, any holy day, any Sabbath. That's a possibility too. Another possibility some scholars have suggested is perhaps this is the Feast of Purim. And that's an interesting one to, to ponder. Purim goes along with the story of Esther. Remember last year when we studied Esther and, and Haman? It's, in some ways, it's the Jewish Halloween. Uh, and you can dress up in, in different uh, in costumes and then go to the synagogue and, and they'll read the, the whole book of Esther. And every time they say the name Haman, you, you boo and you hiss and you make all these you know, sounds with, with sound makers and so on. And, and, uh, and Haman, during the, the Esther story, is the one who casts lots, kind of throw the dice, so to speak to see what's the, a good day to destroy all the Jews. And so pur is the word for lot, and so purim, lots, casting lots, and that's what they call the name of this, of this Jewish festival. Uh, there, there's some scholarly reasons why they suggest this as a possibility uh, of the feast mentioned in John chapter 5, verse 1. But if it is, think about the symbolism, because we're about to meet a man who's waiting for the lots to fall on him waiting to be close enough to the water that when it happens to be troubled, he'll be able to be the first one in. When does it get troubled? That's the problem. Nobody knows. It's, it's like rolling the dice. You just hope that you get lucky. And will this be this lame man's lucky day? There's also the sense of Haman as the enemy who's plotting the death of the Jews. We're going to see that in this story as well in the immediate aftermath of this healing, as the Jews really begin to, the Jewish leaders anyway, really begin to turn against the man who claims to be their Messiah. Okay? 
So, so interesting timetable as far as when this might be occurring. Now, if that's the timetable, now notice the, the location, verse 2. Now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, I can't think of a better name for a place where these people would go to be healed than Bethesda. There's actually a town just outside Washington, D.C. called Bethesda in Maryland. And it's the location of Walter Reed Military Hospital. And no better name for a place of healing than Bethesda, considering what's about to take place at this pool of Bethesda. Now, anytime you see a Hebrew word or a Bible name with Beth in, at the beginning, Beit in the Hebrew, Beit means house. And so Beit Lehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. No better name for the place where the bread of life would be born. But in this case, Bethesda, Beit, that is the house, well, of what? Hesedah, Hesed. Does that name ring any bells? President Nelson, who absolutely loves languages and etymology, has talked about Hesed. And it's the Hebrew word for grace for mercy, in fact, for tender mercy. It's tough to find an English equivalent that's holy enough and high enough and noble enough uh, that, to, to fit that word chesed. It is the pure love of Christ. It is the, the deepest feelings of the heart in terms of love for something that may or may not deserve it. It's the description of what God feels for us. And every act of tender mercy on the, on the Lord's part is a manifestation of his chesed for all of us. And so to have a house of chesed, to have a Bethesda, a place where people will go in search of the tender mercies of the Lord. In fact, they'll search from any direction they possibly can. It, it, to me, it's interesting that there are five porches, <laughs> places to lead into this pool. And you'd think four would be more natural. People coming from the north and the south and the east and the west, and ah, we're going to need to add a fifth because people are trying to muscle their way in from any imaginable direction, desperate to receive the tender mercies of the Lord. I also think it's interesting that it's right by the sheep market. Just yesterday, I was asked to speak uh, to employees at BYU about, it was a, a, a talk about faith and a talk about shepherding. Uh, what I was really trying to convey was this sense of the good shepherd and how important it is to be under shepherds just like him in taking care of one another. And it struck me as I looked up every reference to sheep and shepherds and flocks and lambs in, in all of the standard works, just trying to wrap my head around this concept. And it struck me in the context of, of understanding the Lord as the good shepherd, this verse popped up that Bethesda happened to be by the sheep market, a market, a place where you're going to look at these sheep and decide which ones are found wanting, which ones are worth whatever financial sacrifice you have to make to be able to buy them. Here is a place near where sheep are bought and sold, where they are judged and decided upon. And here is a suffering lamb just outside the sheep market, there at the pool of Bethesda. I'm not sure which of the five porches he <laughs> tried to come in through, but he's waiting for the lot to fall on him, hoping that someday it might. Because what happens at this pool of Bethesda, verse 3 and 4, 
In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk. All five porches, they're just packed with the impotent, of blind, of halt, of withered. And what are they doing there? They're waiting for the moving of the water. Because this is what they, this was their mentality. This is what they assumed. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. At least so it was believed. Elder McConkie clearly said that's not how healings occur. Okay? Uh, so this, is, this was their common belief. If there is a troubling of the water, it suggests this is probably some kind of natural spring uh, or something's bubbling up there. And so occasionally something will bubble up. Uh, natural springs can often have healing properties, right? Uh, and so to be able to be close to this and when the water begins to bubble up, the thought is, oh, an angel has just come. You can't see the angel, but you just saw some rippling of the water, so he must have passed through. And perhaps his holiness is still there in the water and the first one that can come in will be able to be the recipient, allow that virtue to flow into them as they believed. Now, again, think of Bethesda, a house of mercy and grace, where water seems to move on its own. Uh, the water seems almost to have a life of its own, huh? Living water. If Jesus is the bread of life, Bethlehem, and if he is the living water, remember he told that to the woman at the, at the well, a well, here's a water source. Well, here's a different, a different variety of one. But if it is a house of chesed, if it's a house of mercy, a house of grace, it's a place of living water. It's no mere angel that is coming to trouble it, but the living water himself will come to those who are troubled themselves over the kinds of things that they have suffered for a long, long time. But notice the detail we just saw. Whoever's first in is the one that tends to be healed which suggests that the ones who need it most are least likely to receive it. Because among those halt and lame and blind and deaf, what are your odds to get in? Especially if you're among the, the, the halt or the impotent. I can't move. What are my chances of getting there before everyone else? This would be a hard thing to watch where people have, who have the hardest time moving at all are all racing their way to get into the pool as soon as they see it being troubled. The blind are at a disadvantage because they can't see when it's troubled. Will they be late to the, to the gun? The lame and the impotent obviously will have a hard time because they may see it, but surely there's going to be someone in better condition than I am that's going to cut in line. The, can you imagine the desperation in the hearts of these sufferers? Think about the woman with the issue of blood, the woman who dared. Think about the man that was lame, that was lowered down through the roof by his friends. No other way to get him close enough to Jesus. These are people who are truly desperate. And have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that everyone else seems to get in line before me in search of the blessings of God? 
as the Lord is distributing his graces, it always seems to run out before it gets to you. The lot never seems to fall on someone who desperately needs the help. And that's the case in this man that we'll meet in verse 5. A certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. That's over three times as long as the woman with the issue of blood. This is, can you imagine? That's, that's a lifetime for most of us. To understand, I'll even put it this way. In the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and this is just shy of that, 38 years, how long will it take to get to the promised land? To, to imagine this man waiting and wondering and wandering, so to speak. At least he was, he was wandering emotionally. He was wandering spiritually. Will I ever be able to cross my Jordan? Will I ever be able to enter my Bethesda? Will I ever be healed? It certainly doesn't look like it. But when Jesus comes, and this is verse 6, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, I love that Jesus is aware of how long we've been suffering. He doesn't even have to round it up to the clean 40 years. He knows this is 38. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Now that seems like kind of a dumb question. Well, of course. Why do you think I'm here? Lying. Probably as close to the pool as I possibly can so that as soon as I see the water ripple, I can just roll over. Maybe I can do at least that much. Push myself in before someone else butts in line and takes the blessing that I've been dreaming of for myself for almost four decades. Would you be healed? Wilt thou? That's the opposite of what the leper, or the opposite direction from the leper. Remember the leper coming to Jesus. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I know you can. I just don't know if you will. Well, now Jesus is the one asking the question. Will you? Is this your desire? And of course it is. Or is it? Has he given up hope by now? Oh, if you would have asked me 38 years ago, maybe even 28, maybe 18, at what point do our hopes evaporate? At what point do we stop asking and stop dreaming of the day when we might actually receive the blessings that the Lord has promised us? I am so grateful for the vulnerability and the faith and faithfulness of people like Sherry Dew, who is very open and has said as she's spoken to young adults, some of whom are wondering if they'll ever get married. Sister Dew has said, I'm still not married, but I'm still hoping for it. I'm still praying for it. I'm still looking to the, the, the fulfillment of that promised blessing. And that's amazing. That's hope against hope. That is, is, if the Lord asks, even after 38 years of unanswered prayers, do you still want this? Yea, Lord, of course I do. That's the man's feeling, but notice what he says in response. Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, he doesn't even know who he is, but Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. That's the problem. I can't do this on my own. I cannot achieve the healing I'm praying for, hoping for. I can't do it by myself. And that's true of all of us. 
None of us can be healed spiritually on our own. We have no man, or so we think. He then says, but while I am coming, so he's trying, maybe pushing himself forward on his elbows, crawling, doing anything he can with these lifeless legs to get close to the living water. But it never works. I never get there in time. While I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Have you ever been in a line where people seem to keep cutting in front of you? I hated this when I was a young driver and I would get onto the freeway and merging was the scariest thing of all time. So at least I had done that. But then I'm going faster than I'm used to and I'm nervous about this and, and what, what will my reaction time be? And so I need distance. I want distance between me and the car in front of me so that I have plenty of time to react with whatever comes my way. Well, the problem is other people like distance too and they want to get, come in to that distance and catch you off. And I hated that because now I've got somebody that's closer in front of me than I want, than I'm comfortable with. So I would slow down and back up. But now there's more distance and now somebody else comes and takes that spot. And it's, you just can't win. And that's the challenge of this man. I just can't win. I have no one on my team, no one to help me. And other people keep butting in line. So what does the Lord do? Instead of making him come to the living water, let me bring the living water to you. Because you don't need an angel. I will step in with the better angel of my nature and come to meet your needs. You see, you're the type that I was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when I said the meek shall inherit the earth. You see, it's the meek that usually get stepped all over. It's the meek that usually have people cut in line. Well, I'll cut in line myself and come in right beside you. Better yet, I'll pull you out of the line and then just bring you to the front. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He says to him in verse 8 and 9, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Notice Jesus didn't even take him into the water, which is what this man had been hoping for all this time. I just need a man that can bring me to the water. And Jesus says, Oh, you don't need a man. You've got the Son of Man. You don't need that water. I'm the living water. You don't need an angel. You've got the Son of God right before you. Lord, I have no man. You have Jesus. And if any of us ever feel alone and helpless and no one's there for us, when we hit rock bottom, as I have said so many times, we are finally in contact with the rock. We have that man. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with our grief. He is a man of holiness that will allow his holiness to change our lack of holiness. This is, this is a man unlike any other man. And he has come to help us. So take up your bed. Walk. You're better, whether or not you realize it. In the case of the woman with the issue of blood, that woman who dared, she felt it immediately change as virtue flowed into her. And even for her, Jesus clarified, it wasn't my virtue alone. It was your faith that hath made thee whole. He doesn't say exactly that to this man. And we'll see some reasons in a moment. But notice this just invitation. Rise, get up. You can do this. Take up thy bed. 
Instead of the bed supporting you these last 38 years, it's your turn to support the bed. Just pick it up and bring it home. Go walk like you haven't done for a long, long time. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And it's going to be the Pharisees that are going to, that are going to point that out. Wait, 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 what are you doing? We keep seeing this as Jesus heals people on a day of healing that Pharisees only seem to see as a day where you're not supposed to do those kinds of things. Well, it's a, Sabbath's a perfect day to rise. It's a perfect day to be made whole. But yes, this miracle has just spawned another controversy. And we'll see it in verse 10 through 13. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Which again is so tragic. We see something to absolutely rejoice over. And what do they see? Well, something to complain about. It's like, come on, what is this day meant to accomplish? Now, the man is almost as confused as they are. I don't know. I'm just doing what, they, what I was told. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. I'm just following orders here. Okay. Then they asked him, well, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? So we're, we're trying to, to trace the, the guilt back to its source. Oh, so it's not you that's breaking the Sabbath. Well, technically, yes, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're carrying a bed. How dare you do such work? What are you, a, a mover? Well, actually, yeah, finally, for the first time in 38 years, I'm moving. Uh, but I'm not that kind of mover. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not working like you think I am. And they're like, well, you're still working as far as we're concerned. No, I'm just following orders. Well, who gave the orders? Ah, that's a good question. The account says, he that was healed wist not who it was. He didn't know, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. So like usual, this is Jesus never seeking attention for himself, still keeping a bit of his messianic uh, secret, not wanting the, the world to know quite yet who he is. But to see what he's done, not only not to be seen of the multitudes, but not even to be seen of this man. He just says the word and then kind of slips off into the distance while the man wondering, could this possibly have happened? And feeling strength in his legs and then probably a little unsteady at first, but then picking up his bed and walking with it. He's probably off in search of this man, this stranger that said such marvelous words. The man that was my man when I had no man. Who was that? Now, again, like I said, notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, thy faith hath made thee whole. The man hadn't asked for anything. The man hadn't come to Christ. The man didn't know Jesus. Which is really fascinating to realize then, maybe this is Purim. Because part of Purim is to give to the poor. Uh, just cast the lots. Throw the dice. Who needs you? Look around, the poor are always with you, and find someone to go help. That's why trick-or-treating is, is, that's why Halloween is such a, a good fit as far as a, another holiday. Now just pass out the goodies. And was Jesus doing that? As these impotent folk were waiting for the dice to be, to be rolled in the water, no, Jesus just picked someone that he knew needed help. And through no 
act of his own? Again, this, is, this blows me away because almost every other time, Jesus is waiting for a person to exercise their faith. Now, to a degree, Jesus does do that. He does probe the man. Do, what, what do you want? Do you still have this hope to be healed? But I love the fact that it's Jesus who initiates this. Jesus who comes and sees a man in need and then goes and meets those needs without being asked, without being told. He just does it. And it wasn't even based primarily on the faith of the man. It was based on the chesed, the loving kindness of Jesus. This pool of Bethesda is living up to its name. Now turn to verse 14. And afterward, after this conversation between the man and the Jewish leadership is taking place, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. And what better place to find this man? Or in his case, what better place to find Jesus? But I love that this is where the man goes. For the last 38 years, I, unable to move, finally healed. And where does he go first thing? To the house of the Lord. From the pool of Bethesda to the house of God from the, from the house of mercy to the real house of mercy. I'm going to go to the temple. And once he's there and Jesus finds him, Jesus says to him, Behold, thou art made whole. And then notice these three words, sin no more. Wow, sin no more? Yeah, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now this is really interesting, especially after last week. Remember when we saw at the end of, of last week's lesson, Jesus bringing up the people that Pilate had killed. And then he asked, do you think they were more deserving of death than anyone else? Or the 18 people, the construction workers that were killed when this, this tower in Siloam fell down upon them during construction? You think they deserve that too? And in both instances, Jesus' comment was, no, they didn't deserve it any more than anybody else. In other words, suffering is not an automatic evidence of sin. Because that was unfortunately the shallow mentality of most people. Yes, sin does lead to suffering, but it's not always automatic. Ask Job about that, okay? And just because someone is suffering doesn't mean they've sinned. But this is the reverse of that. This is the opposite. And usually scriptures will contain those opposites, so we have a contrary to proof. To know that not all suffering comes from sin, but to also realize that sometimes it does. And in this case, it seems to be with one of those circumstances. I don't know, and we don't learn in this. Jesus doesn't say anything about it uh, as far as the specifics of what this man's sins happened to be. Was it a sin 38 years ago, doing something stupid, doing something sinful, and it caused this to come? I don't know. Was it sin in the meantime uh, of perhaps getting angry at God to the point of disbelieving in him? Just waiting for something else, something, some visible troubling of the water that, that maybe I can take advantage of. I don't know what the sins were, but there were some. And the Lord is warning him, please stop that. It could, because if you thought 38 years of being trapped in a body that did not work was bad, imagine an eternity trapped in a situation from which you cannot be freed. So be free now. Repent. That's the real way of rising. Take up that bed of sin and cast it from thee. Get up and walk, and walk in a better direction. Come into the straight and narrow path. Elder Richard G. Scott once said that if you are suffering, 
a first question to ask, a good question to ask yourself first is, have I done anything to bring this upon myself? Is this one of these sin no more kinds of situations? Like, yep, I did this to myself. That's a good, humble, introspective, Lord, is it I? And then Elder Scott said, if you can think of something like, yes, I did bring this upon myself, then repent. Take up that bed and walk in a better direction. But then he said, if you can't think of anything, of course, we can always think of sins we need to overcome and repent of. But if it's not some obvious glaring, yes, this is what put me into this mess, then realize it's not one of those instances when sin has caused the suffering. That this must be some other purpose that God has in mind. Redemptive turbulence. <laughs> some, uh, some weight upon me to help me build some muscles as I push up against it. Okay, I thought that was really interesting advice from Elder Scott. But back to the story. If you look at verse 15 and 16, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Now, I don't know if this was a good thing, like he can't help himself, or was he that naive that, oh, oh they, were, they were curious, they want to know, and so now I finally know I can tell them. I hope that it wasn't some kind of, ah, now I know who to pass the buck to, and the name of the person that's really to blame, because he's the one that told me to take up my bed. I wasn't trying to break the Sabbath, he was breaking the Sabbath. Now, I hope that's not the case. But whatever it was, they come, and he's come and told the Jewish leaders, it was Jesus and sure enough, in their mind, ha-ha, we should have known. Maybe they did. And they can, they can turn their ire and their attention on Jesus because the blame is now squarely on his shoulders. Speaking of which, isn't that what the atonement is? Shifting blame from the true guilty party to Jesus? Some beautiful symbolism here. Now, regardless of what's going on in the man's mind, we know what's going on in the mind of these Jewish leaders. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Wow, capital offense? When all Jesus did was say to him, take up thy bed and walk? Again, like the man with the withered hand, there was no laying on of hands. It was just say the word. That's a tough one to trace. There's no fingerprints, okay? Where's the smoking gun? But in this case, the Jews didn't need a smoking gun. They could use circumstantial evidence for all they cared about. It wasn't innocent till proven guilty. They, they had assumed guilt, and they were looking for anything to justify their actions in condemning him. Ah, we knew it was Jesus. Ah, and this guy said, he's the one that said it. So, I mean, we've got we to gotta honor the Sabbath. We've got to keep the fourth commandment, after all. You're going to keep the fourth, but break the sixth? Thou shalt not kill. You're looking for a reason to kill because you think someone else broke the fourth commandment about the Sabbath? When you don't even really have proof of that? We got problems here. But these leaders are looking for a way to take down Jesus. This, these are the Haman characters if this happens to be a Purim celebration. And so, yes, boo and hiss all you want when you see them. But how's Jesus going to respond? Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And evidently those Jews <laughs> knew exactly what kind of father he was referring to. They could hear the capital letter there. that <laughs> This is God, my father, who works this way. He heals people on the Sabbath and every other day. He picks people up from their beds of affliction. He... <laughs> He troubled the living water, me, 
his son. He troubled my heart and filled it with compassion, with chesed, so I would go and seek those that were in need of me. That's the way the Father works. That's the way I work, too. Well, those are fighting words for the Jews. And therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, first mistake, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God, second mistake, and a much graver one. We're talking blasphemy being added now to Sabbath breaking. Now, we're going to see this come up several more times. And so I'm going to save the lesson on this for a little bit later when, when Jesus' claims to divinity become even more clear than they already are here. And where the Jews' oh, anger over this becomes even more hostile. The fact that Jesus would somehow make himself equal with God. How dare you? Even my evangelical friends will sometimes raise concerns like that to me, knowing that me and my faith does believe that we haven't made ourselves equal with God, but that is the purpose of the atonement, is to make us more like him. And divine potential and the chance for the Father to give us all that he hath, as he's promised, these are the undercurrents of the theology of what's being, being preached here and what the Jews are so up in arms against him about. Well, like I said, we'll talk more about that in a later lesson. For now, let's see how Jesus responds to this. And his, this is a kind of a mini discourse that you'll see from here to the end of chapter 5 of John. And it's amazing what he's going to explain about the Father and about himself. If you remember an amazing talk from Elder Holland years ago called The Grandeur of God, in conference talks, we, the apostles and prophets tend to talk about Jesus. Yeah, he, that's good. He's the object of our faith. But seldom do they talk about the Father in terms of focused solely on Him. But that was the purpose of this amazing message from Elder Holland. One of the things he said was, yes, Jesus came to improve the Father's view of humanity. That's what the atonement accomplished. Let me clean them up, okay? But also, He came to improve humanity's view of God. This is what the Father really is like. He's not some, he's not the harsh, unfeeling, angry God that some people associate with the Old Testament. No. In fact, since Jesus is Jehovah, it was Jesus that was that God of the Old Testament. Well, he comes in the New Testament in, in human form. The Word made flesh, the incarnation, to show us what that heart has been motivating him to do all along. There's something beautiful about the picture of the Father we see in the face of his Son. And we see a, a face of love and kindness, of Bethesda. And so notice what Jesus says. Verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. I love what Jesus is saying there. There's never been a better example of like Father, like Son, than the Father and the Son. 
And Jesus, as always, giving all the credit to the Father, I'm only doing the things that he has done. I'm showing what he has shown me. And so to understand the love of the Father made manifest through the Son, that's why I cared for this impotent man. Because the Father loves all of us, despite our inability to pick ourselves up and move ourselves forward. But notice what he said at the end. Greater works than these I will show you. What you've seen so far, which has been amazing. Think about what he said to those disciples of John. Look around, go back and report to, go return and report on what you've seen. Blind see, lame walk. Think about what just happened in the pool of Bethesda. But if you think those are great works, and they are, you ain't seen nothing yet. There will yet be greater works than these. And yes, you will marvel. These will be marvelous works that will leave you wondering. And then he lists three of them. And they are mind-blowing. They are greater works. The first is in verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Yes, the resurrection will definitely be a greater work. One of the greatest. To be able to stare down death itself and, and scare it off. To back down the grim reaper. To open the tomb and bring forth life out of death. In a way, he just did that at the Pool of Bethesda. Now, earlier, he did that with the daughter of Jairus. Fast forward, he'll do that with, with Lazarus. Well, those are still lesser works, though, because it's not a full-fledged resurrection. It's more of a resuscitation. They live again, but they'll someday die. But the resurrection, the Father bringing us back, not a hair of our head being lost, body and joint back to its perfect frame, the resurrection, especially as we approach Easter soon, to think about that gift of gifts, one of the greatest of the greater works. I am the resurrection and the life, you better believe it. Now the second greater work is in verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So passing judgment is another greater work. We usually think of Jesus as our advocate with the Father, and sure enough, he is. He's our defense attorney. But as he points out there, he's also our judge, which is a very kind role to play. Because Jesus has condescended to be on our level. He understands that we're made of dust. And that we struggle. And so to judge us out of that level of empathy and understanding, that tender mercy, that chesed, that's a relief to me. But passing judgment, I hate doing that because I don't know all the details. And especially when there's two people and there's some friction between them, something happened, but which one's perpetrator and which one's victim? Well, hasn't the perpetrator been victimized in their past as well? And it's just this big tangled mess. I am so relieved I don't have to pass judgment, at least not final judgment, to leave that in the Lord's hands. And that's even what the Father's willing to do, to leave it in the Lord's hands too. There's a greater work for you. Along those lines, he adds in verse 23 and 24, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Notice the connection there. He's committed all judgment unto the Son. That was verse 22. Why? So that men would honor the Son. 
instead of just honoring the father, like, I don't have to worry about this guy. He's just an, he's just an attorney. I need to be careful about the judge. Well, be careful about this attorney too, because he's part of the judgment team as well. Honor the son, just like you honor the father. He then goes on, he that honoreth not the son, honoreth not the father which hath sent him. And so all of you who think you are guarding the glory of God, angry at me that I'm making myself equal with him. Well, no, God is the one that's offering that equality. And so don't attack me because you'd end up attacking the father. Don't deny me. You're denying him. If you withhold your honor from the son, you have withheld your honor from the father. So verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, there's back to the father, he hath eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Both of these great works are a passing from death unto life. Resurrection in the physical way, death to life, but judgment and forgiveness is passing from death to life in the spiritual way. Because of what we've done, spiritual death is the the final verdict for us all. Separation from God eternally because of our sins. Sin no more, he said to that man at the pool. How he's pleading with all of us with the same language. We have to change. But because of Christ's mercy, his atoning sacrifice, bringing about the conditions of repentance, we can pass from the sentence of death, which we deserve because of our sins, to a verdict of life, in fact, of life eternal. Do you want to talk about great works? We're seeing them. This is a preview of Easter Sunday with its Garden of Gethsemane suffering, with its cross of Calvary crucifixion, with its empty tomb, and the promise of resurrection, not just for Jesus, but for us all. Passing from death to life, physically, spiritually, resurrection, judgment, those are the two greater works. And there's still a third? Are we crescendoing? What's the third? What, what, what beats that? Well, notice verse 25. And the third of the three greater works that Jesus specifies here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming. In fact, you don't even have to wait that long. And now is. It's happening as we speak. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, yes, we could confine that passage to the spiritually dead, because he did mention that in the previous verses. They've passed from death unto life through the atonement of Christ. The judgment has been passed And it's actually reversed the the verdict that you deserved. But he also just mentioned resurrection. He also mentioned that type of movement from death to life. And so the dead hearing and living, if it's spiritual, then yes, now it's happening as we speak because Jesus is preaching to the spiritually dead. Yeah, I'm looking at you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm looking at those that are not honoring the Son, and therefore not honoring the Father, even though they claim to be paying Him lip service. You people are spiritually dead, and here I am, the life of the world, trying to breathe life into you. This is is CPR. This is mouth-to-mouth. This is me breathing, inspiring you. Will you just breathe it in? 
and bring life into you, everything then will change. Ask the man that whose 38 years of impotence just changed in a moment. But in the context of physical resurrection, read that into that passage, and what else do you see? The physically dead, those that you think it's completely over, final judgment has been passed, and, they, and they're found wanting. Oh no, not yet. Because even the physically dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And if they choose to really hear it, they'll live. I think it takes the restoration with its restored understanding of work for the dead to fully understand the implications of what Jesus says in John 5.25. This is a hint of what President Joseph F. Smith learned in 1918, which we now have canonized in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that in this period between death and resurrection, again, I told you this was a preview of Easter, well, if we saw Friday's, well, if we saw Thursday's time in the garden and Friday's time on the cross and Sunday's time coming from this empty tomb, what about Saturday? What happened then? Well, this happened then. The Son of God went to preach deliverance to the captives, to make sure that the dead would finally have their chance to hear his voice. And what blows me away about all of this, this hint of temple work? It's in the temple that we find those that the Lord wants to heal, right? This hint of temple work, this hint of the redemption of the dead, this hint of preaching the gospel to the spirits in prison. Peter will hint at that also, by the way. Uh, uh, Paul will hint at that too. Wait for the second half of the New Testament. We'll see those hints. But far more than a hint, <laughs> God threw open the veil and explained this to Joseph Smith and especially to Joseph F. Smith. And he's explained it to us. If you take those three greater works then, with that reality in mind, in this life, do I get to help with resurrection? No. Do I get to help with final judgment? No, I wouldn't want to. But can I help with that one? It's humbling and awe-inspiring to realize that all these great works that Jesus has performed. I've even asked students over the years, if you got to watch Jesus perform any of his miracles, what would, it be? What would your choice be? Which one would you want to go back in time and just see? And it's a fun conversation. Then I'll take it up a notch. Which one would you want to help with? Later this week, we'll, or later, you know, today in today's lesson, we'll talk about the, the multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And the apostles got to help with that, at least distribution. Would you want to take a 13th basket? Would you want to help with that? Would you want to be one of the four that are lowering their friend down through the roof? Would you want to be among those servants that's trying to hurry Jesus along to go find, to go help Jairus' daughter fast enough? Who, who would you want to be in these stories? Which miracle would you want to assist with? Well, whatever you picked, those are just the great miracles. What about the greater miracles? And if there is a sense of crescendo here, is he hinting this might be among the greatest of all? And we do get to help with that. We get to participate. We get to act as proxy and take the place of those dead who are hearing the voice of the Son of God. And if they choose to, 
They are accepting the work we are doing in their behalf. And they are living as a result. I love pondering this passage when I go to the temple. When I do baptisms for the dead, or ceilings for the dead, or an endowment for the dead, and realize I am participating in one of Jesus' greatest works. As the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and choose to live. Jesus then repeats all three, just to make, kind of cement them in our mind. Verse 26 through 8, For as the Father hath life in himself, remember he's connecting himself to the Father in all of these, the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And that's a, a reminder of the resurrection. I mean, the Son has so much life in himself that not even death can snuff it out permanently. He has so much life in himself that he can restore life to everyone else. He can pour it out of him into us. There's the gift of resurrection. Next one. He hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. So there's a reminder of the final judgment greater work. And I love what he said. Because he's the son of man, not just the son of God. Because he gets us, because he understands us, because he's related to Mary as much as he's related to the father. And by knowing our needs, to our weakness, he's no stranger. He can judge out of empathy, out of compassion. And I'm grateful for that. So reminding you of the first, reminding you of the second, here's the reminder of the third. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And that makes it even more clear that it's not just the spiritually dead that he's speaking to personally, face to face in that moment. But the physically dead, those in the grave, yes, they will hear his voice as well. No one will miss out on the opportunity to hear the voice of the Lord. Whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Whether it's the Lord preaching or organizing the righteous to go out and continue this ministry among the spirits of the dead, everyone will have the chance to decide whether or not they will be one of the sheep of the Good Shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They'll get a chance to listen. And then in verse 29, as they do listen, or even if they don't, they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And I'm presenting the same stark choice to you my mortal conversation partners. Are you listening? Are you ready to come out of your self-imposed grave? Are you willing to realize that you're the halt and the withered and the lame and the blind and the living water is standing right before you? Do we need to go back to the pool of Bethesda for you to open yourself to the recognition that you need my chesed, you need my mercy? Because someday these great works will be passed on everyone. Everyone will be resurrected. Everyone will be judged based on whether or not they heard and accepted the word of God that was presented them. And how will they be resurrected? According to this passage, some to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of damnation. Now what amazes me is in that moment, fast forward 1800 years, and you have Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon hard at work on the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Uh, Joseph's no expert in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, so he's not going from ancient Greek manuscripts. None of them are ancient enough anyway to be an original, right? And so he's looking at an English Bible, and by pure revelation, he's seeking the Lord's guidance 
What needs to be changed? He's got a Bible scholar right alongside him in Sidney Rigdon. There's other commentaries and helps that can be. He's trying to make sense of the Word of God. So yes, Joseph's going to call on any assistance he can possibly find. He's doing his homework. But no amount of homework can restore original truth. We just don't have the, the resources. There's no original documentation. So it's going to be proving this contrary of head and heart. Working on the head with Sidney's help and Adam Clark's commentary's help and as whatever help he can find. But then heart turning to God Is this correct? And the Lord inspiring his prophet, this needs to be changed, or that needs to be deleted, or that needs to be added, and giving us the word of God as is found in his own bosom. That's how he describes the JST in DNC 35. But it's this moment, as Joseph and Sidney have finally translated enough that they've gotten to John chapter 5, when he gets to that verse about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation, Joseph says, oh, wait, 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 stop, stop, Sidney. There's something, because Sidney's writing this all out in longhand as Joseph dictates. And Joseph says, no, there's something wrong there. There's something, no, it's not the resurrection of life and damnation. It's more complicated than that. Uh, it's not just your, your eternal life or damned. It's not just heaven and hell. There's something there's got to be more gradations than that. That's just what you just pass fail and that's it. Uh, and the person just above the line versus the person just below the line are infinitely separated in terms of consequence in the afterlife. That doesn't sound right. Oh, Father, help me understand this. I, when I was in college, I got to work for a year on the, trans, on the JST manuscripts. And we'd gotten permission from the RLDS Church, the Community of Christ, to scan all the original manuscripts And then our job was to create a scholarly transcription of it, where we were trying to type out everything that was on the manuscripts themselves so people could actually read it. But we were looking at, I mean, it was all handwriting. And and there were cross-outs, and there were smudges, and there were writing in the margin, or like pin a scrap of paper on top to be able to write more over it. And our job was to figure out what was under the smudge when they'd lick their, their thumb when the ink was still wet and smudge it out so they could write over it. We were trying to figure out process of translation and process of revelation and how did it all unfold. I've seen this page, well, at least the scanned image of it. Uh, And to see in Sidney Rigdon's handwriting those words, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and then to see of life crossed out and a little carrot to point up between the lines and write instead of the just and cross out damnation and write in its place of the unjust. And then what blows me away, because right there, it doesn't sound like earth shattering. I mean, to be honest, it's surprising to realize that the inspired change that Joseph made to John chapter five, verse 29, It just went from the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation to the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Is that really that big of a difference? According to the Lord, it was. And according to Joseph, it was. Because at that moment, as soon as it dawned on them that it's not just life and damnation, it's just and unjust. and Because you're either 
alive or you're dead. You're either damned or you're saved, right? That's pretty stark. But when it's just and unjust, well, that's tougher to tell. How just am I? How unjust am I? I'm kind of a combination of the two, sadly. How do you tease out the difference? No wonder there's infinite gradations. Ah, no wonder the Lord has said in my Father's house there are many mansions. Ah, no wonder he says there are degrees of glory and even gradations within those degrees. This is starting to make more sense. You see, it's in that moment that the vision opens up. The early saints called it the vision because it was one of the most dramatic that Joseph ever received. And he receives it right alongside Sidney Rigdon as they're both seeing this unfold. They called it the vision, singular, but it was actually six visions, plural. And they saw the Father and the Son. They saw the fall of Satan. They fall, saw the sons of perdition. They saw celestial glory and terrestrial glory and telestial glory. And they wrote it all down in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's an amazing revelation. In fact, what I was hinting at earlier, what blows me away when I saw that manuscript is not just the cross out of life and damnation, not just the insertion of, of just and unjust, but right at the end of that sentence is my favorite smudge in the entire manuscript. Most of the smudges are horizontal where you just lick your thumb and wipe out along that line and then write in it. This one is vertical, and it doesn't seem to be the kind that you wipe with your, with your licked thumb. It seems more like the type that you just, Sidney's writing, and he just pauses there on the period, and the ink just kind of drips down the quill, and then his hand just kind of slips down below. I, I hope I'm not reading too much into a smudge, but it was in that moment that the vision opened. And to picture Sidney just writing and then all of a sudden just stopping and jaw drop and eyes open and, and hand kind of slips down because he, they understand in ways that they never had before. Just how, how intent God is at saving his children. That's the kind of father we have who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus, standing right before the spiritually dead, offering a chance for even they to hear the voice of God. This is a glorious moment in church history, in understanding the doctrine of the Father. And it all grows out of this, this, this point on the page in John 5, 29. If you want to learn more about this, talk more about it. The lesson I taught about section 76 recounts this whole thing. But to see it from the New Testament angle is pretty powerful too. Now, Jesus is going to continue his discourse, his explanation. And that, like I said, it's mostly focused on father and son. But the father bearing witness of the son and so many other things doing the same because his immediate audience right then was not getting it. They're thinking Jesus is blasphemous for even making some kind of an association with the Father. So no, he's going to keep pushing that. It's not blasphemous. It's honesty. He says in verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Again, he's giving the Father the credit, taking none to himself. 
the best leaders I know were the best followers leading up to it. And that's Jesus to a T. I do those things I've seen my father do. I judge the way he would judge. And careful, because I'm ready to pass judgment on you. And that's how the father would judge you too. Are you just? Are you unjust? You want life? You want damnation? Choice is yours. The dead are beginning to hear my voice. He then says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, and that's probably what they're thinking. You just talk about yourself. Like, oh, look at me. I'm the son of God. No, we're going to see this repeated a little bit later. But here, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And here he's just invoking Jewish law. It's not just one person's testimony, especially if it's self-centered. We can't take your word for it. There have to be other witnesses as well. And that's what he gets at. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But here's the solution. There is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You see, here's good, good Jewish law. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Paul will say that clearly in, in 2 Corinthians. But here, Jesus invoking the law of witnesses, I'm not the only one that bears witness of myself. He'll, like I said, he'll do this again right on the heels of this conversation with the woman taken in adultery. But in this case, same thing. Let me invoke the law of witnesses to suggest that I'm not the only, bearing, only one bearing witness of myself. The Father is bearing witness of me as well. And by the way, what's amazing about that is it's another piece of evidence that Jesus and the Father are separate beings. If we, if we accept at face value the doctrine of, of Trinitarianism, that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are the same in, not only in purpose, but also in essence, it's the same thing then the law of witnesses doesn't really work, does it? Uh, if the Father and I are identical, if we're the same substance, then one part of me is bearing witness of another part of me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. In the same way that Jesus is praying to, a, to his Father, a distinct being, he is invoking the witness of his Father, a distinct being, to be second witness to the testimony he's bearing of himself. It's really fascinating. And like I said, this is not the, not the last time that we'll see Jesus do that. But even that's not the only other witness that he has. Look at verse 33. Ye sent unto John, John the Baptist that is, and he bear witness unto the truth. Come on, this is the preparer of the way, testifying of the way. And I am the way, the truth and the life. He was preparing for me. I'm here. He goes on, but I receive not testimony from man, so I didn't even need John's mortal testimony. I had the father of us all testifying of my divine identity. But still, you did have John. And then he said, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, after all. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. What the Lord seems to be saying there is, I didn't need John's backup, but I had it. Maybe it was more for your sake than for mine. Those that are in tune with the Father would know that I'm his son. But if you weren't open to that vertical confirmation, you got an incredible horizontal one. In fact, the JST of this passage says that you accepted John as a prophet. Then why didn't you accept his testimony? 
it's fascinating for me to see Jesus using John as backup, even though he doesn't need the backup. Again, for mortal hearers' sake, you rejoiced in John, then why don't you rejoice in what John rejoiced in, namely me? He was a burning and a shining light, but he shined that light on the light of the world. And mine has come to eclipse his. In fact, even the language, these past tense verbs, that he was a burning and a shining light, that you rejoiced in his light for a season. Has something happened? Yes. And in a moment, we'll turn to that account that none of the gospel writers could bring themselves to describe in the moment. The only accounts we have of John's death are flashbacks, painful memories that they finally felt like we have to bring this up. We have to explain what happened. But for people who loved John to miss the point of his message, this is Jesus, again, trying to Talk about irony. The judge trying to defend himself. He who is trying to defend all of us, having to defend himself from us. Do you not know who I am? The Father has borne witness of me. John the Baptist has borne witness of me. Take it vertical. Take it horizontal. Take whatever you need, but come to know me because that's where salvation comes from. That's what he's getting at. I say these things that ye might be saved. It's my ultimate hope. And if you still haven't trusted the Father, if you still haven't even trusted John, how about another option? Verse 36 through 38, but I have greater witness than that of John. JST, John's testimony, what he bore to you. That's not enough. I I have something even stronger. And here it is. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, I am the author and finisher of your faith after all. Those works, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Always come back to that one. The best witness you can have is the spiritual one. All these other horizontal things. John the Baptist's testimony, the testimony of the evidence you've seen and the works that I've performed. It's still best to turn to God and know from him that this is true. Now the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. That's the worst part of it all. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. That's the real tragedy. You ignore all the witnesses. You believed in John, but you don't believe John when he bears witness of me. You claim to believe in the Father, but you don't believe the Father's witness of me. You claim to, hey, just show me a sign and I'll know I've given you plenty. Remember what, with John the Baptist, speaking of the burning and shining light, when he sent those disciples, just tell me what you see. And Jesus says, go tell them what you saw. And my works ought to be enough to spark the fire of faith in anyone. Anyone with a soft enough heart to receive it anyway. And if that starts the process where you ultimately turn to God and receive a witness from Him, great. I'm less concerned about how the process begins. Works, John, anybody. I'm more interested in how it ends. 
with you coming to know the Son through the Father and thereby being saved. And then Jesus brings up one more, and this is an amazing one, that sadly we seem to take out of context frequently and miss the Savior's point. It's John 5, verse 39, where Jesus says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now, usually when I hear people explain that verse, it's, to, it's in a talk on Scripture study. And they'll quote this verse and say, See, Jesus wants us to search the Scriptures, because that's where we'll find eternal life. Now, there's some truth to that. And yes, we should be searching the Scriptures. I know I'm preaching to the choir. Here we are doing it, right? But what he's really saying is searching the Scriptures is, is not the solution to this immediate audience, because that's what they do. You search the Scriptures. Is he giving them a command, or is he stating the obvious? This is what you scribes and Pharisees, you guardians of the law, that's what you do constantly. You search the Scriptures. Why? For in them ye think ye have eternal life. That phrase we usually skip over and just go, oh yeah, eternal life is found in the, in the Scriptures. That's why we search them. No, to his immediate audience, he's saying, you think that's where you find eternal life. You think the Word of God is going to save you. It doesn't. It only points you to the true source of your salvation. That's what he says by the end. They are they which testify of me. The scriptures are an arrow. And you sit there and study the arrow and try to find out the, what's the perimeter and what's the surface area. Or if you spun it around a central axis, what would the volume of the solid be? It's an arrow. Just turn in the direction it's pointing. That's all it's for. It's the signpost, not the destination. If you think about what Nephi says at the end of 2 Nephi, end of his writings, and he's been pouring his heart and soul into these writings, but he knows that they're only means, not ends. And so he says at the end of 2 Nephi 33 to his readers, please believe in Jesus. Even if you don't believe in these words, believe in Jesus. You understand he, he sees which is the more important of the two? Jesus is getting at the same thing here. Scriptures are amazing, don't get me wrong. They're an, they're an incredible signpost. They're an important arrow. But they're pointing to me. The destination has arrived. I'm right here in front of you. And if anyone should be able to recognize what the scriptures are pointing to, it's experts in scripture, scribes and Pharisees. I really, really hope in all these hours and hours that we spend in the scriptures, searching them, I hope we don't do it because we think that this is what's earning us eternal life. And that judgment day will consist of some kind of scantron with angels passing out number two pencils for us to fill out our knowledge of gospel trivia. No. Have we come to know the word capital W, through his words, lowercase w, on the page. Yes, we search the scriptures, not because we think that they give us eternal life, but because they introduce us to life personified. They teach us of Jesus. And I hope that's been happening for all of us as we've been studying these words. I was made aware of an amazing quotation from a, an Anglican priest who fought in World War I. 
His name was Jeffrey Studdard Kennedy. And he said this about scripture. The Bible is not merely the history of God's self-revelation to man. It is the history of the making of man capable of receiving the revelation. That's a profound insight. I've often said that the scriptures are not, are not just a catalog of someone else's revelations, but rather a catalyst for revelations of our own. It's the, it's, the Lord is planting seeds, showing how he has responded to other people's questions in hopes of exciting us to ask questions of our own. There are evidence that God does communicate with his children. Then take the hint and communicate with God yourself. I love how this good Anglican man describes it. It's not just the history. It's, it teaches us the process. It prepares us. It purifies us. Scripture study itself has a changing effect upon us, a transformative power. And, and what, is it, what is it transforming us into? People connected with God, able to receive that kind of revelation. It's powerful what scripture study does to change our hearts, not just fill our minds. And that's what Jesus was getting at here. You scriptorians have missed the point. The point of the arrow, as it pointed to me. So you see what he's doing here? The Father is a witness of me. John the Baptist was a witness of me. All the works that I've done, by their fruits ye shall know them. Look at the fruit, eat it, and you'll know me. And even the scriptures that you claim to know so well. The words of Moses, well, Moses knew me and pointed to me. Every prophet testifying of the coming of the Son of God. All the messianic messages of Isaiah and others. Will you have the Messiah before you? He's trying to help the blind see. And it's, 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 that's the hardest miracle he's, he's, had. He's, had, he's having a hard time performing this. And that's the hardest miracle he's got to perform. Notice this in verse 40 to 43. Since these people just want to stick with the lowercase word and end up ignoring the capital word. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. After all, Jesus is the life. There's no other life but the kind that he can breathe into us. I receive not honor from men. Again, that's witness that's like John the Baptist's, just horizontal, just flesh and blood. It has to come from God, ultimately, vertically. But I know you, he says, that ye have not the love of God in you. You see, that's what's keeping you from recognizing the love of God standing right in front of you in visible form. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But if you can't recognize God's love, then of course you can't recognize God's son. He says, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. Well, if another shall come in his own name, him ye shall receive. Sounds a lot like what Samuel the Lamanite said. If I give you God's word, you want to throw me off the, off the wall, you want to get me out of town. Then again, if I give you your word, if I just parrot back to you what you wanted to hear, then, oh, there's a prophet for you. No, there's the itching ears. Just scratch and tell me just what sounds good to me. No, those are just flattering words. Now, verse 44, the Lord goes on, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? It really is only horizontal hubris that you're after. You never get around to receiving the vertical virtue. You only want the honor that comes from one another. 
I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll excuse your sins if you'll excuse mine. Is anybody turning upward to God? Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, because I don't have to. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. You see, that's this law of Moses. It's the words of Moses. It's the scriptures, the books of Moses you have before you. You think that's where you get eternal life. That's where you're placing your trust. Well, guess what? Those very things that you claim to love, the very things that you cling to so desperately, so dogmatically, so blindly, those are they that testify of me. So I don't have to accuse you of missing the boat. Your own precious scriptures will prove you wrong because they were testifying of me the whole time. It's powerful what the Lord is saying here. He says, had ye believed Moses, your precious lawgiver, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me, but ye believe not his writings. How shall ye believe my words? Do you get it? Do we get it? This is, it's incredible what the Lord is saying here. This is, this is how John chapter 5 ends. And it's a powerful ending. It's going to be just as powerful when we pick up chapter 6 by the end of this week's material. Uh, it, Jesus is getting stronger and stronger in his denunciation of those that are trying to denounce him. Yeah, there's fighting words going on in the book of John. Okay? And as Jesus is pulling out all the stops, as he's bringing witness after witness to the stand, the irony of this last one, it's so fascinating. What did he start with? The Father. He wishes he could end there. We'll see this in a coming week when he applauds Peter for the source of his testimony. Not flesh and blood, but your Father which is in heaven. You got the vertical one, Peter. Good job. That's the one that we all need to hold to. But the ones that Jesus also brings up as maybe means to that greater final destination, John the Baptist, you knew him. Why don't you know me? The works that I've given you, let your eyes speak to your heart. And then the clincher, your own scripture. Even if you only rejoiced in John for a time, you've been rejoicing in Moses for centuries. Well, he rejoiced to see my day. Jesus is going to say that about Abraham in a coming week. Here he's saying it about Moses. And it's that same Moses that's going to come back to haunt you. The irony of, again, if we're seeing this as a court case, and Jesus is trying to defend himself from their false accusations, and he's bringing up his own witnesses, the Father, John, and his works. And people still aren't swayed. And then Jesus says, fine, I got one more witness to call to the stand. And the lawyers for the prosecution are like, you don't have anyone else on your side. And Jesus is like, oh, I don't need somebody from my side. I'll take a witness from yours. Thank you very much. And they're like, what? No, they're on my side. They're going to, Moses, could you come to the stand? And they're like, what, 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 what? Moses is our guy. Nobody knows the scriptures quite like us. We search the scriptures constantly because in them we find eternal life. <laughs> I know that's the problem. Moses, could you come forward? Moses, how much of your own words were self-referential? Were you talking about yourself all the time? Were the scriptures bearing witness of the scriptures? Was that their ultimate goal? And Moses would shake his head. Well, of course not. They were pointing to something higher. Ah, 
So the scriptures were pointing outside themselves, above themselves. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Then I don't want to lead the witness here. Let me just ask you, what were they pointing toward? Now, what would Moses say? Well, he could quote Amulek if he wanted. That every wit of the law of Moses, every little detail, was meant to point forward to that great and last sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. Every messianic prophecy in the scriptures. Well, they were pointing to you. You're the Messiah, after all. Can you imagine the chaos through the courtroom? How dare you take one of our own witnesses and turn him against us? Now, you turned him against yourself because you never really caught the vision of what he was trying to accomplish. You saw it as destination. It was just signpost. I'm the end of this. Come unto me. But they didn't understand. To me, this is a fascinating place to really ponder not just how well do I know the scriptures, but how well are they proving their point in me? There was a conference talk several years ago by Elder Wilfred Anderson about the music of the gospel. Remember this one? I love the analogy that there's music playing and there's people dancing, but sometimes those two aren't happening at the same time. Sadly, there are those that have only mastered the dance steps, but have never learned to listen to the music. And it's probably only a matter of time until they, they stop dancing. That's what Jesus is pushing here. You know the dance inside and out. You search the scriptures. Can you hear the music of God? It's like look up from your sheet music and see that I'm the conductor that's been trying to bring this music out of you all along. Please come to know me. That is the purpose of chapter 5 of John. It's going to be the purpose of chapter 6 of John as well as we come back to it at the end of this week's study. In the meantime, we need to take a quick field trip back to the Synoptic Gospels though. Maybe we jump off that springboard where Jesus mentioned John the Baptist as a burning and a shining light about people rejoicing in him, but sadly only doing it for a season. Because what we're going to see as we go back to Mark 6 is where we'll see it best. Matthew 14 tells the same story. There's some things, some clues in Luke that we'll add to it as well. But it's in Mark 6 that we'll get the best account of how that season came to its end with the death of John the Baptist. So John chapter 6, verse 14, King Herod heard of him, and that's of Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. Now, King Herod, uh, thank you, Mark. Matthew's is a little more technical. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. And that should tell us something, because we've seen Jesus' fame spreading far and wide. But this is the first time we're seeing it in the ears of a Tetrarch or king, if you want to use Mark's title. We're going beyond the circles of religious authority into the, into the palaces of political authority. And now they're starting to hear news about Jesus? What's going on here? Now, it's important that Herod hear this, because notice what comes next. Herod says that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. John did all these incredible works. It must be John 2.0. He's back from the dead. 
In the Luke version, it says that now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, by Jesus, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. So in Luke's account, it's the other people suggesting, well, maybe it's John back from the dead. In Matthew and Mark, it's Herod himself wondering, could this be John back from the dead? In the Mark account, others also say it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, oh, it is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Or in Luke's version, Herod said, John, have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. There's all kinds of confusion between the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account of, is it John? Is it bad? Is, who's saying is it John? Is it the people? Is it Herod? I don't know. Well, who else could it be? Well, is it Elias? Because didn't John say something about like preparing the way? And that's what Elias does. Was he that prophet? Is, is he just one of the other prophets? I don't know. Remember when we first met John and everyone's confused about who he is and they're all asking questions? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet that's going to restore all things? No, no, no. I'm just a preparer of the way. And the way is coming after me. I'm just highway construction, trying to get you to a, a better destination. Okay? People were confused by John in his life. No wonder they're still confused by John in his death. No wonder they're confused by Jesus. And since Jesus and John rejoiced in one another, there's such a close connection between the preparer and the way. No wonder all this confusion is happening all over again. There's also, add to this, some vague belief in a resurrection that even Herod the Tetrarch, this would be the son of Herod, the King Herod that had all the children killed, the, the baby boys killed in Bethlehem, but like father, like son on this side too, and they're all horrible, all these Herods are. But he's wondering, I already be. Is this like Hydra? I cut off one head and it comes back somewhere else? I got rid of John. At least I, I could have sworn I did. Who is this guy? But almost haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist, has he returned? Because I'm still second guessing what I did. Well, Herod, what did you do? Because this is news to me. We've seen hints about people, the gospel writers, dating different events from the death of John. But this is when we first see the obvious. It, he's gone. Herod knows it. I, at least he thought he did. Uh, I, I had him beheaded for crying out loud. And we readers are, wait, 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 what? There's a story here, isn't there? And yes, here's the flashback. Mark chapter 6, verse 17 and 18 for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. I mean, that's, I mean, maybe in the law of leveret marriage, but your brother isn't dead. And so to have some divorce there, that's the first problem. And then to marry her, uh, that's the second problem. No, 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 no. All you Herods, not only are you sharing in, in evil attributes, violence being a huge one, but now you're even sharing a spouse? No. What you're doing, Herod and Herodias, again, names match made in heaven, right? Or in this case, hell. That's adultery. Call it what you will. Now, 
Didn't I tell you that John was not a reed shaken in the wind? He's not going to king's palaces to wear soft clothing. Oh, he's going to a king's palace, or at least a tetrarch's. But not to get comfortable, no. To make sure that Herod isn't comfortable in his sin. He's going to call him out. And that's John the Baptist to a T. Remember, he's the one calling out scribes and Pharisees. Oh, you generation of vipers. Well, now he's going to the viper in chief. Herod's slithering around his palace. And John comes in to crush the serpent's head. Now, we know of that prophecy from the book of Genesis. And what's the, what happens as this serpent tries to bruise the heel? Well, he gets his head crushed along the way. In John's case, it wasn't quite that way. He did bruise. If we kind of reverse it. Instead of crushing Herod, he bruised him. Bruised his ego, at least. And instead of Herod bruising John, he crushed him. Or so he thought. Now, John's purpose had been fulfilled. He had prepared the way, but the way was here. And mission accomplished, John didn't have to continue his mission. His mission had come to a close, and here's where it happened. Speaking truth to power, there in all his glorious camel hair and leather, not shaking in the wind, but blowing that wind of condemnation in the direction of Herod himself. I love John for this. You want to talk about a burning and shining light. That was him to a T. Now verse 19 tells us that it ticked off Herodias even more than Herod. It says, therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. Now, in some ways, she becomes the personification of the house of Israel at the time, at least the Jewish leaders that want to have Jesus killed, but can't. It's not my authority. It has to be Roman authority. So what does Herodias do? She turns to Herod. What do the Jewish leaders do? They turn to Pilate. They turn to Rome. This is religion giving way to politics in hopes that politics will take care of its dirty work. Ever since then, it's usually been the reverse. Usually it's been politics trying to enlist religion to get, it, to get people to do their dirty work. And if people, I mean, that's the Crusades, there's so much of it, it's not religion that's driving it, it's politics that, it's our, that is. But if I can get religion to, to rally the troops, then they'll really, they'll really do what I want if they think they're doing what God wants. Okay, interesting history there. But interesting to see Herodias caught between this, or in her own situation, her own lack of authority, but her own just zeal and anger and bitterness. And again, that's where the Jews are coming from as they turn to Rome. So now Herodias is going to turn to Herod. She couldn't kill John. So what does she do instead? She turns to her husband and then look verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy and observed him. The JST there changes it somewhat, that he knew that John was a holy man and one who feared God and observed to worship him. So it's John that's observing to be worshipful. It's not Herod that's observing John. But then again, he is, because he knows he's just, he knows he's holy. And when he heard him, when Herod hears John, this is fascinating, he did many things. 
and not many things like out of anger. The JST clarifies that he did many things for him. He's not doing things to John. He's doing things for John. And then Mark adds this final phrase and heard him gladly. Now that's fascinating. Herod kind of likes John. Herod rejoiced in John for a season. He warmed his hands by that burning light. He saw more clearly by that shining light. Hmm. I mean, I'm not jealous of your camel hair and leather. I'm the one sitting in the king's palace with my soft raiment. I'm not, I don't want to change that, but you have some fascinating things to say. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. We'll see that in the life of Paul. If you look at the Matthew version of all of this, it suggests that Herod wanted to kill John, not just Herodias. It's a little stronger there, but notice this addition in Matthew. But he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And Jesus would say, well, well more than a prophet, actually. Now, again, there's some confusion here, but think about it from Herod's standpoint. Is he afraid to act against John out of fear of the multitude? Yes, Matthew would tell us that. But is it also fear out of what he knows within? And that's what Mark would hint at. I would say Matthew and Mark are both right. And, and Herod is both wrong. I mean, Herod in this story is defined by his fear of people. And we'll see that clearly in a moment. Fearing what the multitudes would say because the multitudes rejoice in this bright shining light. And dang it, so do I. I can't admit that to the multitude. I barely want to admit it to John, but even sometimes I let that slip out as I do things for him. As I hear him gladly because the things that he says are pretty mind-blowing. Even me, this kind of lapsed Jew, this, this half-Idumean, this ah, usurper of a throne, this adulterer. I, but I can't deny the light that is shining through this man, John the Baptist. It'd be too embarrassing for me to lower myself, to go down from my palace to the Jordan River Valley, to lower myself in that dirty water. But man, it sure would be nice to come out clean. I, in a way, I feel for Herod. In a way, I, he frustrates me to no end, which is usually a sign that I have some Herod in me. And am I a little too worried about what people might think? In my good days, do I receive the word of God gladly? Am I doing things for others in a kind way because I recognize their kindness? But then on other days, does my conscience get pricked? And instead of descending to a level of humility where I can repent, instead I get angry and frustrated and I start listening to other angry voices. I mean, we're all a mess, right? We're all a mix of good Herod and bad Herod or of Herod and Herodias, we're all saint and sinner rolled into one. What is Herod going to do here? He's afraid of what the people will think. He, he knows better, but he doesn't want to look like... It's what Elder Maxwell called reverse hypocrisy. Most hypocrisy is, I want people to think I'm good, even though I'm not. In this case, it's Herod. I want people to think that I don't care about John even though I do. I'm more committed on the inside than I want people to know on the outside. 
and even though he's supposed to be a leader, he's the breed shaken in the wind. Herod is. And he blows to the popular opinion of his wife. Can we put her that title in quotes? In some ways, this is an interesting parallel. Uh, if you remember taking the ACT or the SAT, for example, and they have those analogies. This is to this as that is to that. Dog is to puppy as cat is to kitten. Okay, you understand relationships. That's what they're testing. How about this one? John is to Herod as Jesus is to Pilate. Again, think about the parallels here. Uh, John is no Jesus. And Herod is no Pilate. Herod's just a tetrarch. Pilate's running the show in Jerusalem. But to see the parallel of a leader that ends up being a, a follower and someone that knew better giving in. We see that take place in verse 21 through 23. And when a convenient day was come, hold on to that word, it's convenient day. What the day was it? Well, it's Herod's birthday of all days. Herod, on his birthday, made a supper to his lords, his high captains, his chief estates of Galilee. I mean, this is the muckety-mucks. These are the, the, the best kinds of people. Who do I want to celebrate with? Well, the people that are high and mighty, that can make me feel even higher, higher and mightier than they. Now, as part of the party, when the daughter of the said Herodias came in, and according to Josephus, her name was Salome. Really interesting, because if Salome, if you take the Hebrew S-L-M, Salome, that's the same as the S-H-L-M, Shalome, Shalom. Oh, is her, does her name mean peace in Hebrew? Because if so, that's the worst possible thing to name her, because she was not peaceful at all. But here comes Salome dancing her way into her stepfather's good graces. When the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. Makes you wonder how old is she and what kind of pleasing is this? I doubt this is some little toddler in, in her tutu. Yeah, this is not some juvenile ballet number. Is this something far more sensual than that? Is this what King Ahasuerus was telling Vashti to do? That Vashti refused and then was replaced with Queen Esther. What kind of a dance is this on the king's birthday? And who cares if I'm quote-unquote related to her? I've objectified my brother's wife and taken her as my own. Why can't I objectify her daughter and objectify her in front of my friends? This is hideous what's happening here. But she comes and she pleases them all. And the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, anything, sky's the limit, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, I'll give you my word, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Now talk about a rash promise. But then again, if you know how sly and sneaky this serpent is, I'm sure that Herod could slither out from that promise. Because after all, if you're my stepdaughter... And someday you'll marry somebody that's going to be the real crown prince. Take my place. Ah, we'll see what, what, what ends up happening. 
Herod, the, the, the whole Herodian line was pretty violent in trying to preserve their own authority or put people in place and so on. But if she's the daughter of this tetrarch, then giving her half the kingdom, it's still my kingdom. And I'm not going to give it to her now, but maybe when I die and that's part of the inheritance, she's already married. We'll work that out later. What I'm more concerned about is what, not what she's going to think about, oh, what do I get? But what do these lords and these high captains and these chief estates, what will they feel? When I can make a promise like that, it's like, whoa, this guy Herod must be incredibly wealthy, powerful. If he can give away half his kingdom and not bat an eye. That's chump change. I could easily live on the other half and still rise above all of you, lower lords. But part of the tragedy of this, again, if Herod is defined by his, his fear of people, his bowing to the wind, his bending to peer pressure, this is going to be a problem. Because now it's not just what Herodias thinks against what I think and what I kind of worry. It's not just what Salome this, and her lack of peace is going to want. I've got other people that heard me make the promise. And in some ways, they're probably getting their eyes lit up like, man, this, this is how generous this guy is. He's got so much that he's willing to give half kingdoms out because of a, a nice dance. Imagine what he would do for me if I did more for him. Yeah, that's right. So again, is Herod trying to show his power, establish his authority, and all the people there, are they coming away from this thinking, I'm going to do anything for Herod, because it seems like he'll do anything for anyone who pleases him. Does it sound like the I scratch your back, you scratch mine that we hear going on in the halls of government? And there's some problems that we see as a result. Well, sadly for John, even sadly for the better angel of Herod's nature, Herod on a good day, he's going to care more about his Lord's than the preparer of the Lord himself. He's going to care more about his high captains than the one whom the captain of our soul raised as high as anyone could. Chief estates. Herod's about to get rid of his second estate. Lose it. Because he's going to put his first estate first. And I want to hold on to the kingdom I have instead of bowing to the king of kings that John has always borne witness of. There's a lot of interesting ironies here in where John finds himself, but where Herod finds himself as well. And back to that word, convenient. Is that typically when we betray the better angels of our nature? Is that typically when good Herod turns into bad Herod? Out of convenience? Is that when we deny what we really know and the fact that the words of John actually do greatly please us? That we do hear him gladly. That I would do things for him. I don't want to do things against him, but what he's asking of me is really inconvenient. I mean, break off my marriage? When, I mean, what's Herodias going to say? What are the people going to say? It's like admitting that what I did was incestuous or adulterous or wrong. I, I can, now, that's talk about inconvenient. That's downright embarrassing. 
Jesus is the inconvenient Messiah. What a title. And I pray we do not deny him or his servants just because following him leads us into some uncomfortable situations, some inconvenient acts. Sacrifice will never be convenient. That's why it's a sacrifice. But it will always be rewarded. So maybe it wasn't a sacrifice after all. Just beware of convenience. Well, verse 24 and 25, beware of Salome also. She went forth and said unto her mother, Ah, oh, what shall I ask? In the Matthew account, she already knew. She had already been before instructed of her mother. So yeah, like mother, like daughter. This is an objectified wife turning to an objectified daughter saying, go out and objectify yourself and make sure you get your stepfather to promise you anything. Because I have something, I've got something on my wish list. I don't even need three wishes from this genie. I just need one. And it's to get rid of the person that is making my life so inconvenient. So, she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she, Salome, came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. Now that is disgusting. That is troubling, gory. Ah, why? I thought you were just a pretty girl that was... And you're asking for horrible things. Immorality has now turned into violence and oh, breaking the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is leading me to break the sixth, thou shalt not kill. This is Bathsheba and Uriah all over again. And I'm no King David. What? What's Herod going to do? Notice, by the way, the kind of language, straightway, that means immediately. As soon as mom tells daughter, she prepared for it in advance. I actually wonder which is the better version. It's either this malice aforethought, you know, the criminal intent. Oh, I'm going to go in and dance just so I can do this. Or was, or is the other version of just, hey, mom, what should I ask for? And all the innocence, despite her guilt, and I have the kingdom. Wouldn't that be amazing? And Herodias probably thinking, I've already got half the kingdom. I married it. And since I can pop off your stepfather, then I can get the rest of the kingdom and I can pass You can have the whole thing. Don't, don't settle for that. But this John character is ruining everything. So I've got a different idea. And I wonder if it's her thinking it all in advance, mother, but popping the idea onto her daughter in that instant. Because imagine how horrified Salome would be if she had any vestiges of peace within her. But the kind of language like she came in straightway with haste suggests just act on it. Don't think about it. Don't talk yourself out of this. In the moment, with all the peer pressure and the eyes of all these lords and chief captains and chief estates bearing down on him, oh, is he going to back off? Does he, is this the kind of leader that makes shallow promises and then pulls back on his word? Because if so, then I'm not going to make any promises to him. He's not going to elevate me the way he would promise. Do you see where Herod is now, caught between a rock and a hard place? What am I going to do? 
if you know your book of Ether from the Book of Mormon, Salome has now become the daughter of Jared, who is one of the most wicked women in the entire Book of Mormon. And her secret combinations lead to the downfall of the Jaredite civilization as time goes on. Here, Salome is serving that same purpose. Now, again, how's Herod going to feel about this? Verse 26, the king, yeah, the tetrarch, or whatever, the pawn, was exceeding sorry. Oh, that's good. Glad you were sorry about what you did. No. If you were really sorry, you wouldn't have done it at all. But he's exceeding sorry that he said it, that he made such a rash promise and now has to act on it. Yet for his oath's sake, oh, I got to be a man of my word. (laughs) What, because of your integrity? No. And for their sakes, which sat with him. Ah, that's the real thing you're sorry about. That's the real sake that you're doing this. It's, It's peer pressure. It's the read bending and bowing in the wind. It's worrying what people will think of you. It's fear of man, which you have always had, Herod. Because of that fear, he would not reject her. And immediately, before he could think about it, before he could you know, count to ten and, or, or sleep on it and come to his senses and figure out a different way, no, it's just all happening so fast. And that's what the adversary is always after. These blitzkrieg, like just rush in and get you to sin before you can really think about its consequences. Get, narrow the focus and so you don't see what the result of these decisions will be. No, immediately. The king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. This is disgusting. This is horrifying. This goes against Herod's own feelings. But peer pressure is a strong thing when you fear man. Yes, he was exceeding sorry, but not sorry enough. Again, connect him to Pilate. I see no guilt in this man. This is an innocent man. Well, I'll crucify him anyway, or you're no friend of Caesar. Ah, Caesar, speaking of lords, speaking of high captains, speaking of chief estates, I'm going to lose mine. Uh, Well, I'll wash my hands and try to remain clean of it all. He wasn't. And so ended the life of John the Baptist. Of him born of women, there hath not risen a greater than he. This is Jesus' cousin. This is Jesus' forerunner. This is Jesus' friend. They bore witness of one another. Hot potato of praise. No, no, it's all about you. No, it's all about you. Oh, I get it. You're right. It is about me. But, it, but it's about you. And, and Jesus, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You and me, serving together, condescending hand in hand. And he's gone. Does Jesus know yet? Does anyone know yet? How does the word spread? The way we see it here at the end of this account, verse 29 and 30, when his, John that is, when his disciples heard of it, we don't know how, but they heard of it. Maybe it came through the wife of Herod's steward. She would have been horrified by this. 
When his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. They at least wanted to honor the body of the man that they had followed in life. But there he is lying in this tomb. Meanwhile, the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. You see, this is them returning from their mission. But talk about a bittersweet moment for them all. Disciples and apostles are all rushing to Jesus to tell them things. From the apostles, it's good news. You gave us power to preach and to heal, and we did. We were able to cast out devils and raise the the lame and heal the sick, just like you did, just like you told us we could. Talk about a glorious return and report. But mingled with those messages were those coming from distraught and devastated disciples of John, rushing to Jesus to tell him the news of what had happened. Sounds a lot like life to me, where we seem to receive good news and bad news all at the same time, and things that will cause our hearts to rejoice, and things that will cause our soul to slump over, absolutely devastated. What will Jesus do with these reports? How will he respond to these, this kind of news? How is he feeling? How are we feeling? To understand those questions, we have to turn to the second half of our lesson. The, the next few stories that emerge. But do not lose sight of the context of what we've just seen. The death of John the Baptist. Now, for this second half to unfold, again, do not lose sight of the first. John has just been killed. The word has begun to spread. The word has come to Jesus. And as we begin the the next story, with that in the back of our mind, in fact, the forefront of our mind, look at Matthew chapter 14. We'll use Matthew's account here to start. Verse 12 and 13, his disciples came and took up the body and buried it. We saw that already in the Mark account of John's death. But we add this phrase in Matthew. And they went and told Jesus. So from Mark's account, we get the apostles coming to report, return and report on their missions. Uh, in Mark, we saw that disciples of John heard about the death and they bury the body of, of John. But we don't see a, a, an exact connection to Jesus. But here we do it in Matthew that after the burial of John, they come and they tell Jesus. And so he's hearing good news from the apostles, devastating news from these disciples. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Now notice that they went to a desert place. And if you're thinking desert, you're probably picturing sand dunes. Well, don't. In the Mark account of this and the Luke account of this, the JST, every time the word desert is mentioned, the inspired version replaces it with the word solitary. So don't think desert. Think deserted. Okay? It's apart. 
It's deserted. There aren't people around. In, Mark, in Mark's version, this is chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus said unto them, and these are those apostles who just returned from their missions, Come ye yourselves, so ye yourselves, it means just you guys, okay? I want you 12, my closest 12. Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, a solitary place, and rest a while. Sound like something well-deserved after a long and grueling mission? Let's come apart, just the 13 of us, be solitary, away from the multitudes that are constantly asking for our help, and just rest. For there were many coming and going. Yeah, that always seems to be what's happening in the Savior's ministry. Crowds, as far as the eye can see, always surrounded by a multitude. Many coming and going. They had no leisure so much as to eat. You ever been so busy you don't have time to eat? You young mothers are like, uh-huh, every day. Yeah, but no leisure at all. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. So they even got on a boat, because it's harder for people to follow. Okay, And they go off on this ship to a solitary place. They do it privately. Does it make sense why this would be the case? What's just happened? Both the good and the bad? The good news of a well-served mission and now a chance for some well-deserved rest. The bad news of the loss of one of your best friends in the world. A, a cousin and close companion. Someone you admired. Someone you loved. Friends from even before birth. As John, within Elizabeth, starts kicking with joy at the approach of Jesus within Mary. It's amazing, this friendship. And it's now over, at least for this life. The burning light has been snuffed out by a man of darkness. And how do you cope with that? Of all the times in Jesus's life, we'll see this as we approach Gethsemane, where it's is weighing on Jesus, and there is a heaviness of heart within him that's undeniable. But this is the first time we see anything close to that in the Savior's mortal ministry. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah prophesied. Well, there's grief and sorrow introducing themselves to him, far beyond mere acquaintance. And what does he do? What do you do? You ever been in that situation of like, would-be comforters will come and try to help, and you don't have any words for them, they don't really have any words for you, and you'd probably just rather be alone? Or if not alone, only with those that are closest to you? People that can mourn with you as you mourn? People that know it's not yet time to comfort those that stand in need of comfort? We're all devastated together, and we just need some space and some time to heal, to process, to weep, to reminisce, to let our hearts break, hoping someday they'll, they'll mend. This must have been one of the most difficult moments in Christ's ministry. And it's weighing on him. 
crushing him down under an anxious load. You multitudes, carest thou not that I perish this time? That I'm struggling? That I'm suffering? That I'm mourning and just need some time alone? My apostles are tired. I'm weary, too. Can you just give us some time to rest in a solitary place, apart, where we're going privately? Which must have made the following phrases among the most devastating you'll read in the Gospels. We see them all over. How about this from John chapter 6, verse 1 through 4? setting the stage for what's about to happen. After these things, everything we saw in the first half of our lesson from John chapter 5, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Now, that's letting us know that it's Passover time now. How much time has passed since the healing of the Pool of Bethesda? Hard to know, but it's, we're nearing another Passover. And Jesus is heading up a mountain to be with his disciples. A mountain may not sound like a desert, but it does sound like a deserted place. It does sound pretty solitary. It does sound apart. A place you could go privately, get, a, get alone. In fact, a place to climb to get closer to God, the source of all comfort and healing. That's what's happening at this time. But did you catch the detail? A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles. We'll even follow you up the mountain. It's worth the climb. Or Matthew's version, chapter 14, verse 13. When the people had heard thereof, they heard Jesus was going somewhere. They didn't hear the part about solitary. They must not have heard the part about desert or apart or privately. But they, they knew where he was going or that he was going. When they heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Or the Mark version, which is worst of all, chapter 6, verse 33. And the people saw them departing. Hmm, wasn't as private as they'd hoped. And many knew him. They, oh, they recognized, that's the one. In all these comings and goings, everyone always wants to be with him. And they ran afoot thither out of all cities. Matthew just said the cities. Mark said all cities. And outwent them and came together unto him. Now think about that. They outwent him. That means they headed him off at the pass. They got there first. Did they know a shortcut? Or was Jesus' pace a little slower than usual? Kind of shuffling off to this solitary place. Head bowed. Not a lot of talking. This is a somber moment as they trudge off to this solitary place. But the people outwent them. The multitudes, the cause of all the coming and going, the reason there was never any leisure so much as to eat, the needy, the takers, takers, takers. And Jesus just wants to be alone. 
this is the bishop and his wife that are so overworked and overwhelmed that they never have time for each other. And finally, they've carved out a date night and they're heading off. And right as they're walking out the door to get in the car, the phone rings and both of their stomachs drop. They look and see it's a ward member. And the bishop knows that that ward member's in need. And he looks at his wife, caught between a rock and a hard place. And she looks back, caught between the same poles. What do we do? This is the Relief Society president being called to minister to someone who's in need, but this Relief Society president has greater needs of her own. This is anyone who's reached the end of their rope and I've got nothing more to give. And someone came with a need, hoping that I could meet it. I remember once when I was an institute teacher up at the University of Utah that they publicized throughout our area there was going to be an in-service that was optional. Not required of, any, of anyone, but everyone was welcome to come if they chose. It was going to be on the topic of compassion fatigue. I don't even know if I'd ever heard of that phrase, but as soon as I read it, I knew exactly what it was because I felt it. And what do you do when your whole life is spent giving, 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 and you wonder, do I have anything else to give? As soon as I heard the phrase, I thought of my wife, who gives far more than I do, and is just wired to empathy, and, and has a really hard time establishing any boundaries, because it feels like I'm not giving something to someone that they might need. Have you ever felt that? You mothers, most likely. You priesthood leaders, most likely. All of us at some point, most likely. Well, perhaps for the first and maybe the only time in Jesus' life. No, not only. I see the same happening in Gethsemane. But picture Jesus at the end of his emotional rope. trying to hold on to a little knot that he tied at the end so he doesn't fall off. And then multitudes come, reaching, grabbing, trying to lay hold on him, which only adds to the weight. With that thought in mind, turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. So this is Luke's way of saying they outwent him, that they got there first, that when he wanted to be alone, he got there and he wasn't. And how does he respond? Luke says, He received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. As beautiful as it is what Luke just said, Luke just tells us what Jesus did. Matthew and Mark tell us what Jesus felt. And it's so much more revealing. I'm going to put these side by side. Matthew 14, 14 and Mark 6, 34. And let's compare them phrase by phrase. Matthews. And Jesus went forth, Mark, 
And Jesus, when he came out, Matthew, and saw a great multitude, Mark, and saw much people. And then both gospel writers in absolute unison and was moved with compassion toward them. Compassion. Mark adds, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And the good shepherd was right there, recognizing in them wandering sheep. And he couldn't hold back. He was moved with compassion. And so in the Matthew account, he healed their sick. And in the Mark account, he began to teach them many things. Now, please understand this, because it's in this context that Jesus will multiply the loaves and the fishes. That's the storyline that as it unfolds, in the immediate aftermath of Jesus healing their sick and teaching them about the kingdom, as he was the king of that kingdom, embodied, standing before them, it's on, the, it's on the heels of that experience that he multiplies loaves and fishes to feed these hungering sheep. But to me, as incredible as the miracle of multiplying loaves and, loaves and fishes is, even greater is the miracle of multiplying the compassion within him to make him want to do that at all. I think we lose the greater miracle by forgetting the context of what Christ is doing. 5,000 men plus women and children Oh yeah, they did come out of the cities. They must have come out of all cities. They outwent him. Coming and going, not so much as to eat, not so much as to mourn. This was supposed to be our time away. Perhaps we can forgive the apostles for being a little testy. Some of the language suggests some of that when he's, they're asking, can you send them away so they can go find food? We were trying to be alone ourselves. But if we paint the full picture of what Jesus is feeling behind what he's doing, can, can you imagine this? I'm just trying to be alone with my closest 12 friends so we can process and mourn and weep and just heal and recover together. So I can recharge my compassion so I don't have compassion fatigue. To build up something, to get it from God. Remember they're going up to a mountain? That's where Jesus always went to connect with heaven. To be able to pray and recharge the spiritual batteries. It sounds like that's what he's trying to do. But picture him rounding the corner. Coming up over the crest of the hill. Reassuring his apostles, I know just the right spot sufficiently solitary for us to go and privately process all of this. And picture his heart starting to oh, starting to hope for some time alone. And as they come over the top and look down to what they had expected to be solitary, deserted, Nothing but tumbleweeds. They see a multitude. Numbering in the thousands. Probably all smile like, surprise! 
we're here. We found out where you were coming and we outwent you. Aren't you excited to see us? And you picture all the apostles clenching their fists and biting their tongue and probably feeling some righteous indignation, not only for their own self-protection, but trying to save the Savior. And Jesus, looking out upon them, filling up every empty space in this solitary place and being filled with compassion. Come with passion, suffering. It is compassion because I'm suffering too in ways that you probably have no idea about. But since we're all suffering together, and you've come in hopes of healing. I do have something left to give. My dear fellow sufferers, there is a contrary to be proven here like everywhere else. There are times we have to say no, so we'll be able to keep saying yes. There are boundaries that we need to maintain to be able to find places to recharge. Or, yes, we'll run out of stuff to give. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. And yet in Jesus' case, again, those times, those, that all night he spent in prayer before he called the apostles, times he went up to be alone with God. We'll see another one of those today. In fact, it's almost a sense of, I didn't get what I wanted to get, but I'll get it in a moment as quickly as I possibly can, if this is one more experience. I don't know if I could make it two or three or four or beyond, but while the multitudes are here, perhaps I can multiply my compassion in such a way that I can multiply whatever it is to meet their needs. And then I'll have a chance to recharge. I wasn't on absolute empty, just getting close. We do need to balance things. We need to be careful and cautious and wise. But we also need to be compassionate. Sometimes, even at times when it feels like we've got nothing left to give. This, it, to me, is one of the most glorious moments where you see the compassionate heart of a shepherd that is willing to lose himself yet again on behalf of his sheep. He does find himself in the process a little later on. Notice the details as they unfold. Matthew 14, verse 15 and 16. When it was evening, Mark's version says, the day was now far spent. Luke's version says, the day began to wear away. His disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place. You can, can you hear the, the kind of the frustration in their voice? This is supposed to be solitary. And the time is now past. Past time to be alone? Yeah, that ship sailed. Even before our ship sailed to get here. The time is now past. Mark says it's far past. The JST says the time for departure is come. And is that us leaving them or them leaving us? We planned on, we had dibs on this place first. They just got here first. So, what do they say? Send the multitude away. 
Now, if it was just frustration, I can't blame them personally. But it may also have been some sense of compassion on their part. Because they say that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Mark says, send them away to buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. I mean, when they found out we were leaving, they booked it. They didn't even pack a lunch. They just grabbed their families and, and took off running because they knew they'd have to sprint to if there were any hope of, of getting here first. To outwent us, <laughs> to outgo us, they just had to run. So send them off so they can find something. So, a little frustration, probably. Some compassion, probably. But Jesus, all compassion, said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Yeah, they don't, they don't need to leave. Why don't you feed them? If they're looking for bread, provide it. If they have nothing, then give them something. And I want you to do it. Give ye them to eat. Why would we put that burden on them? Like they ought to go provide for themselves. Didn't you guys just get back from your mission? What did I told you before you left? Not to bring purse or script, but just to trust in a God that feeds the fowls of the air and clothes the lilies of the field. You came back. Did you put on a little weight there, uh, Simon? You look like you ate plenty there, uh, Thaddeus. The Lord provided for you. Go and provide for them. It's amazing what Jesus is doing to dig deep. In some ways, it's such a beautiful personification of what he's doing on the compassion side. I have nothing, and yet I'm giving it. You apostles feel like you have nothing to give? Well, give it to them too. Somehow, when you dig deep, it's like the oath and covenant of the priesthood. If you magnify your calling, the Lord will renew your body. I don't know how it happens, but I know that it does, because he does it for me all the time. And often when I'm falling, on this, uh, falling to sleep on the way to a fireside, <laughs> I have more energy by the end of it than I did at the start. And the Lord has renewed my body and renewed my soul. It's amazing what he's doing, but it's amazing what he's asking. But if it's compassion, fellow suffering, suffering with, that is motivating him. In fact, I have a new friend, a great, great soul, who has a great gift with words. And he, his name is Robbie Taggart, and just a, he's a poet as well as a teacher. And I stumbled across a, an Instagram page that, he's, that he created called Come Follow Me Poetry. And with his poetic talent, he writes a new poem every week to go along with the Come Follow Me curriculum. It's awesome. Uh, so many different styles and genres. He's a, he's a master of all trades. And I stumbled across one of his poems that he wrote back in the week that we did the, the Temptations of Jesus in the Wilderness. Remember changing stones into bread? In a way, that's what he's going to ask the apostles to do. Take your stone-like heart and turn that into bread for the multitudes. Soften. Okay, don't get frustrated. Don't get angry. And I hope I'm not reading too much into that. Maybe I'm just reading myself into that. That's how I'd feel. Seriously? Come on. Go feed yourself. We've been feeding you all day. We're hungry. We haven't had so much leisure as to eat. 
Remember that phrase. And now you're the one that we're supposed to feed you when we got nothing to feed ourselves? You're ruining our alone time with Jesus? Again, yeah, maybe that's me talking. But take the stony heart and turn it into bread for the multitude to do that. Anyway, back to Robbie's poem. He was writing about the temptation to change the stones to bread. And the Savior's mortal stomach growling at the time. And ah, what am I going to do as I'm so hungry after a 40-day fast? Will I succumb to this temptation and take care of my own needs? Hmm, sound a little like what Jesus is wrestling with there at this so-called solitary place? Hmm, all kinds of interesting parallels between these two stories. But here's the parallel that Robbie gave in the second stanza of his poem. How, how did he resist? And I love the way it's put here. But he made up a bed in his soul for that pain and tucked it in so that when he needed it to teach him empathy, he could awaken it and learn how to feed the multitudes. That is beautiful. To make a bed for your pain and tuck it in. I just love the mental. That's a beautiful. That's, that's what I love about poetry. It paints pictures that prose just can't. And to paint a picture of a bed in which you tuck in your pain, little kiss its forehead, sing it a lullaby, let it fall asleep, knowing someday you'll need that pain. You'll need that sorrow. You'll need that suffering. That tired trial that's been resting a while. You'll need it so you can wake it up to remind you of what it felt like as it awakes perhaps it puts your compassion fatigue to sleep it needs to rest after all and compassion comes flowing in on the heels of empathy an empathy that has awakened to teach you how to feed the multitude. Thanks for the poem, Robbie. There's... I wonder if we all have things that we've tucked in, maybe without even knowing it. Things that we thought that we completely overcame and were past, and maybe we weren't meant to get past them permanently. No, instead we were meant to look back on them from safe distance. <laughs> Jesus' stomach wasn't quite growling as strong this day as it was there in the wilderness. But enough to jolt him into the recognition and the memory of what it feels like to hunger. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why did they come so quickly without even packing a lunch. At least Passover, you're eating food in a three-point stance, but you got the food there. These, at this time leading up to Passover, no, they just sprinted out of the starting blocks, unprepared for just how much I would teach them and just how long it would take to heal everyone. And now the time is far spent. The time for departing, but nobody wants to leave. This is like 3 Nephi 17, looking upon Jesus as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer.
please stay as they, as they ask silently through tear-filled eyes. And Jesus awakes that empathy out of slumber. I know what it's like to hunger. And so let's fill you, not just with the Holy Ghost. Let's fill you with something a little more temporally substantial. And so he does. In Mark chapter 6, verse 37 to 38, the apostles say to him, what? Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? This is how dumbfounded they are. And again, maybe frustration is now morphing into absolute confusion. 200 penny worth, by the way. A penny is what a day laborer would make in a day's worth of work. It's a day's wage. So 200 days worth? I mean, if you take Sabbaths off uh, and other feast days and so on, we're getting close to a year's salary. This is major sacrifice on the part of the apostles. Do they have any of that money? Is there anyone they could even give it to to buy bread? They're looking at Jesus going, this is impossible. Not only do I have no compassion to call upon, I have no bakers to call upon. There's no food around here for them or for us. We're all hungry. We'll see more of that in just a moment. Now, Jesus' response, he saith unto them, well, how many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, five and two fishes. So thankfully, not just carbs. We've even got some protein, okay? but, but not enough. Certainly nowhere near the 200 pennies worth we would need to feed a multitude as large as this. So we're still between a rock and a hard place. I do love what Jesus says here, though. We're going to see what he does in a moment. What he says, go and see. What do we have? Let's take inventory. Let's take stock of what we do have and figure out how far that'll go. At least it's something to start with. A good bishop does just that, by the way, when somebody comes and asks for fast offering assistance. I can't pay my bills and I'm at the end of my rope. And you have, Is there any way you can help me with church finances? And the bishop, of course, lovingly will say, you've come to the right place. But also balancing justice and mercy and not just giving fish, but teaching people to fish. A wise bishop will also say, well, what do you have? How many loaves have ye? Go and see. Let's look at your budget. Let's look at your income and your expenditures. Are there some things we could eliminate from the debit side and some ways to increase the credit side? Also, do you have any family members you can call upon? Because the concentric circles of help here would be the individual first and the family second and extended family included, and then the church beyond that, the, the, the larger extended family. Okay, the family of the faith. But what do you have? Apostles don't just come and go, we got nothing, can you just... Now, there needs to be a contrary to be proven here of agency and inspiration, of self-sufficiency, as well as a recognition that we will never be self-sufficient. What can you do on your side? You took no thoughts if it was to ask me? Come on, Oliver Cowdery, you got to do some homework. So apostles, what do we got? Let's find out. And they say, yeah, we did, and this is it. Five loaves of bread, two little fish. In the John account, it's really interesting. This is chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. By the way, this, I, I think this is the only miracle in Jesus' ministry that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all talk about. That's how important it is. We're going to get all four gospel writers weighing in on it. 
When Jesus had lifted up his eyes, which makes you wonder, had his head been bowed down in sorrow? In the John account, it's just him going off, and we don't get the sense that the multitude has, was already there waiting. It's like he arrives, and here he's lifting up his eyes, and whoa, where did everybody come from? It says, he saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, and I don't know why he singles out Philip for this, but he says to him, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And then John inserts, and this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. <laughs> I love this. So it's not just re check your resources and inventory what you've already got. Let's inventory your thought processes. Uh, your, your, your game plan. What do you think we should do here? I love it when the Lord plays stupid. <laughs> when he just pretends not to know what to do or just gives us the option. This is like the brother of Jared. I don't know. What do you think we should do to have light in the vessels? Oh, man, I got to think this one through. Uh huh. Hey, Philip, what do you say? These people look hungry. We're going to need to get them some food. Whence shall we buy bread? And I do believe there are times where the Lord's asking us to figure things out. I remember when I read Elder or President Irene's biography, I was blown away by that sense of, man, the Lord really makes his apostles do a lot of homework and figure things out and study it out. And it's hard work. I had kind of naively assumed like, well, there are prophets, prophets and apostles. They just know it automatically. No, this is Jesus pushing his apostles, pushing Philip. What do you think we should do? Philip's response is interesting, and it ties into President Irene in a way also. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. So that's where, that's where we get that same sense of what we got in the Mark version of, what, what are we going to go buy 200 penny worth of bread? Now what Philip is admitting there, even if we were only to give them a little, compare that to what they're going to end up getting, but even a little, crumb here, crumb there, we would still need more than 200 pennies worth. Maybe Philip is among the mathematicians in the group, and he's estimating crowd numbers by crowd size and thinking, there's no way. Whoever suggested the 200 pennies worth, that, that's going to be insufficient, even if we gave him a tiny, tiny bit. Uh, you brethren out there, did you ever, were you ever the priest at the stand breaking the bread on a day when it was like uh, a mission farewell? And this kid must have been the most popular kid in the high school because the whole chapel overflow gym is packed. And the, per the teachers brought, they didn't bring the loaf of bread. They brought the normal number of slices that, that we keep, that we use for our ward. Have you ever had those experiences? And you're praying for a multiplication of the loaves? And you're wondering, how on earth are we going to have enough for everybody? And you kind of whisper to the priest next to you, tiny, tiny pieces, really, really small. And people are getting crumbs, but at least it counts to take the sacrament. That's what Philip's getting at, even a little. But notice, he didn't answer the Lord's question. Jesus asked him, whence shall we buy bread? And his response was, even 200 pennies worth of bread won't be enough to give everybody anything. To give them a little. Was there an answer in there somewhere? Or were you just 
restating the problem, which in this case was restating the obvious. Now, I said that has something to do with Elder Irene, and this was an interesting admission on his part, that when he was a junior apostle, and remember, President Irene is as smart as they come. President Irene, I mean, Harvard, Stanford, MIT on your resume, yeah, that's pretty impressive. And in his uh, Harvard PhD in business administration, he studied how do large organizations make complex decisions. No wonder the Lord was like, I can use that. We've got a large organization, my kingdom, with a lot of complex decisions to make. We could use your help, Henry. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. As a very junior apostle, and he was, the young, he was the junior apostle for longer than almost anybody else in the history of the church. Not a lot of change after he became an apostle. And they were discussing all kinds of things. This is during the President Hinckley administration. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who, that would have been an amazing pair. They knew each other really, really well. Uh, Elder Irene had been working with or close to uh, Elder Irene, or Elder Maxwell, for a long time, ever since he went, Elder Maxwell was Church Commissioner of Education, and Henry B. Irene was President of Ricks College. So they knew each other inside and out. And ultimately, they were both on the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And as they were discussing things and wrestling with difficult issues and hard decisions, President or Elder Irene, all this Harvard expertise would kick in. It's like, well, this and that and point things out. He would have been a good one for Jesus to ask. He was like a Philip. So, Henry, what do you think we should do here? You got your PhD in this kind of stuff. And according to Elder Irene and, President, and, and Elder Maxwell, what Elder, at some point along the process, Elder Maxwell turned to, well, probably in a solitary place apart, pulled Elder Irene aside and said, you know how, as we're discussing these difficult things, you always do a great job of pointing out the problems. You do an amazing job of identifying challenges and weaknesses in possible approaches. Like, yeah, that won't work because of this, and there's going to be a problem here, and this will raise this issue, and you'll have a bigger problem than what you're trying to solve. And, and Elder Maxwell was basically saying, we're so grateful for that. As a quorum, we need people that can poke holes in the arguments and see the problems in plans and, and recognize what we're up against. However, we could use a little more help with the solutions. There has to be more than just pointing out problems. Can, can you help us see what we don't know? And that was an interesting wake-up call for Elder Irene. And an important impetus for growth in himself. I see something similar happening here with Philip. Thanks for, thanks for the problem. I asked for help with the solution. That, that's an area I think we can all grow in. Now, Philip doesn't have a solution, but Andrew seems to. And so the camera pans to him. And this sadly oft-forgotten brother of Peter. We always think Peter, James, and John. Peter and Andrew were brothers. Andrew's amazing. And in this moment, you get to see some of that amazement. That, that amazement. John chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, 
Ah, but what are they among so many? I love that last line. What are they among so many? Like Philip, he saw the problem. But unlike Philip, he saw mm, a down payment on the solution. He saw something. I mean, if the Lord told us to take inventory, go and see. We, we went and saw. And all we found among the multitudes, man, they really did just take off and run. But this one kid, <sighs> smarter than the rest, at least better prepared. Maybe he had his Eagle Scout by then. Be prepared. Yeah, he was. And he brought quite the lunch for himself. I mean, five loaves and two fishes. Uh, maybe he planned to be out in this wilderness for a while. He came well prepared, but he's the only one that did. And in fact, if you notice the way Andrew described everything, the details here are fascinating. Number one, describe the fish. I know there are two of them, but what did Andrew say? They're small. There wasn't much of a catch. And remember, Andrew, what did he do for a living? He was a fisherman, so he's like, you call those fish? What kind of bait were you using, son? Uh, okay, two small fish. What about the loaves? What does he say specifically about them? We know there's five, but he gives us another detail. They're barley. Okay, what does that mean? Well, most of the bread we eat is wheat. And there were times that the ancient Jews in, in Israel would eat wheat as well. But often it was barley. Because here's the thing, barley grows on or grows in inferior soil. It's a heartier grain. And so it'll grow in places that wheat won't survive. And as a result, barley tends to be a little more plentiful. And as a result, barley tends to be more cheap. Also, barley has more, oh, there's more kind of substance to it than wheat bread. Barley bread, if you compare the two, it's really a fascinating study. Uh, it's more bang for your buck. So eating a slice of barley bread will get, do more for you than a slice of wheat bread. Then why not stick with barley? Well, because barley has less gluten, and so it doesn't rise as well. And so it's not as good. It's, not, it's like barley's, to put it bluntly, is lower class bread. Wheat is more upper class bread. Barley was often used to feed the animals. And again, it's cheap and it's a lot of bang for the buck. And, it'll, and they don't care if it rises well or if it, how, it, how it tastes. They're just going to eat the stuff. And you poor, you're a lot like the cattle. Just eat the stuff and quit complaining. Barley was often called the grain of the pork. In fact, when Naomi and Ruth come back to Israel from Moab, and they're so poor, these two widows with no other source of support, they're out gleaning in the fields. Remember what kind of fields they were gleaning in? It says they went during the time of the barley harvest. And that's just one more way to emphasize just how poverty-stricken these two widows were. So the details that... John is giving us here. They're fish, but they're, there's only two of them, but they're small too. And loaves, there's only five of them, but they're barley loaves too. And who's giving this to you? It's a, speaking of small, it's just a lad. It's not even coming from a large man. It's coming from a small one. Everything's small here. No wonder there's this concern. What are they among so many? Well, as far as Jesus is concerned, it's all I need. I just need something. 
Remember, we don't believe in creation ex nihilo. In other words, out of nothing. For the creation of the universe, the Lord used existing material. I don't need much, but I need something. Just a little starter kit. Do you have anything to offer me? Go and see. And that's all there is? Fine. I'm impressed there was that much. You brought enough food to feed an army, boy. Well, and we've got an army that needs feeding. So thank you for contributing. By the way, think about how this boy is going to feel. As he, the fact he would even speak up, this is like, imagine, oh, pioneer rations and everyone's starving to death, but somebody has somehow something that's, um, they got some beef jerky, I don't know. And as the, as the captain's going around, go, does anybody have anything that we can start subdividing? Oh, if I'm feeling selfish or just feeling like self-preservation, I'm not saying a word. And as the kids, <laughs> picture the apostles, anyone have any food that we can try to help share with other people that are hungry? Picture this boy kind of reaching into his purse, his knapsack with nobody looking. One, two, three, four. Yep, five, two. Ooh, those are smaller than I thought. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying a word. Because what will I end up? If I end up sharing, what's one five, five thousandth oh, plus the women and children? Oh, I don't know. One seven thousandth, eight thousandth, twelfth? I don't know how many thousands we're at. I'm lucky to get a crumb at all, a fish scale. I'm not saying anything. But no, he gives his all. I'm sorry it's so little. I'm sorry I'm so little. I'm sorry it was only barley. That's all we can afford. And Jesus just smiling. Thank you for giving your all. You're no mere lad. And sometimes that's all we can give God to. What could my puny efforts be when the need is so many? I have felt that often. I still do. Knowing how many people are out in the world that are really struggling in their faith, waiting their turn, sending an email, crying out for help. Is there anyone that can answer my daughter's question or help my husband return to the fold? Can anybody help confirm my faith as I'm struggling? I have no man. And I haven't seen the water ripple in a long, long time. I'm grateful for a Lord that just asks for anything and then multiplies it. Enough to meet the need and then some. The way this miracle unfolds, as you know, Matthew 14, 17 to 18, they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. So that's all we got. And Jesus said, Bring them hither to me. There's the first step. This isn't even enough to present to you. That would almost be an affront. It would be offensive. But Jesus is not offended. It's like, really? That's all you have to give? Great. Bring it here. And I love that no matter how small our offering, Jesus just wants us to bring it to him. Because what does that do? It gets us to come close. That's the best hope I have to come unto Christ is to offer him whatever I have. Even if all I have is sin, I've come to repent. This is worse than barley. 
This is like moldy bread. Uh, th this fish has turned. But I just want to come. And this is the one thing I've got. Jesus will take any of it. Just bring it hither. Now back to John account, 6 verse 10. Jesus said, make the men sit down. So relax. You don't have to eat and run. <laughs> you don't have to eat in a three-point stance. Passover is still a little while away. It says, now there was much grass in the place. So again, this isn't desert as in sand dunes. It's deserted as maybe kind of grazing land. There's just grass, wide open fields. No wonder there's no villages and towns close. There's no place to buy bread. Just wide open spaces, but a lot of grass, which suggests a comfortable place to sit. Jesus wants, is concerned not only about their stomachs, but also just their backs, their legs, their feet. Take a load off. Just sit and relax. So the men sat down. In number, about 5,000. Shift to the Mark account. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. So it's not just much grass. It's green grass. This is, this is lush. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. So they're not only comfortable, this is going to be organized. After all, the Lord's is a house of order. I don't want anyone pushing and shoving to get to the front of the line. I just had that experience at the Pool of Bethesda. There's enough for everyone. Okay? So order. In some ways, we're almost arranging the house of Israel. Sure enough, with 12 tribes, you'd probably need 12 apostles to feed them and 12 basketfuls of leftover. Okay, I'm seeing this. Here's the Lord organizing his people. Then verse 19 of Matthew 14. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven. This is where you would insert John's phrase. And when he had given thanks, so he's looking up to heaven, it's a prayer of gratitude. <laughs> gratitude for not having enough? No. Gratitude for having anything at all. Gratitude for a boy that was willing to consecrate his all. Gratitude for compassion, making him want to meet the needs of this multitude. I'm just grateful. Grateful that there's multitudes that even want to come. Whatever it is that the Lord is feeling, it's gratitude throughout it all. So he looks up to heaven. He gives thanks. Back to the Matthew version. He blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Interesting that Jesus, rather than looking out and fixating on the size of the multitude, he's looking up to God and seeing the source of the blessings that that multitude needs. In some ways, it's similar to the disciples, the apostles on the boat, that were scared to death of the size of the waves and the strength of the wind all around them, and lost sight of the presence of Jesus on the boat. It's not going under. Are we too concerned about the size of the multitude? Are we too concerned about the, the weight of responsibility and all the things we have to get done and I'm never going to do it because that's going to paralyze us. And we won't even be able to help the people that could have been fed with five loaves or two fishes. We'll be so scared to death as we're counting everything, we start to kind of gnawing on the bread ourselves, not thinking, and we're like halfway done with the loaves before we realize, what have I been doing? 
don't worry about the size of the multitude. Don't worry about the quantity of problems there are to solve. Look up to God. Look to me in every thought. Doubt not. Fear not. I'm here. See what you do have. What little time you have to spare. What meager gifts you can contribute. Be thankful for them. I am. And what's amazing is as he combines the needs of the multitude, which seem almost infinite, with the blessings of God, ah, that's where the infinite really comes in. Of course there'll be enough to meet it. If I approach God gratefully instead of anxiously, and if I trust in the blessings that he wants to give to the people that he loves. Jesus doesn't care that the bread is barley. He doesn't care that the fish were small. There's actually a great story in early church history where Joseph Smith is struggling and the family's living on nothing. Uh, They've probably given away everything they've got. And it's dinner time and all they have is a Johnny cake. And a Johnny cake, picture a pancake made out of like cornmeal. And if you want to talk about poor bread, (laughs) corn might be the equivalent of barley. Uh, in early America, where it's just, you're just eating corn and grinding it down into cornmeal and making cornbread and Johnny cakes. And that's just kind of what you got. Uh, There's not much to it. Okay. And as it's time for dinner, and there it is, just a Johnny cake, Joseph Smith offers the blessing on the food. And it's hilarious what he says, Lord, we thank thee for this Johnny cake and ask thee to send us something better. Amen. Can you picture a little tongue-in-cheek, maybe a little smirk on Joseph's face of, of this? I'm so grateful. I'm not looking at gift horse in the mouth. I'm so grateful for this Johnny cake. Sure beats nothing, but if you got anything else, we'll, we'll take that too, Lord. So please bless us with something better. And then they dug into the Johnny cake. Even before they finished the meal, if you can call it that, a knock came at the door. And some good brother came in and said, Joseph... I just felt like I needed to come by. Here's some flour. That beats cornmeal. And here's a ham. Ooh, that even beats little fish. And Joseph just smiled over at Emma and said, I knew the Lord would answer my prayer. He did. Well, this sweet lad, thanks for your Johnny cakes. We'll see what else the Lord has to throw into the mix. I've even heard it said that there... I think they call it a stone stew or something like that. And one person will say, I'm going to bring the pot and a stone. Anyone else just bring whatever you got. And they fill up the pot with water, throw the stone in. And then anyone else that has anything, well, I had a carrot, I had a turnip, I had a parsnip, I had a uh, whatever. And they just, and because everyone just gives their all, whatever it is, by the time it's done, there's food for everybody. And nobody has to eat the stone. There's enough to give and enough to partake of. And that's the case here. Matthew 14, verse 20. They did all eat and were filled. Remember Philip's concern? They're not even going to be able to eat a little. Well, they got to eat a lot. They were filled. John says that they ate as much as they would. Okay? All you can eat buffet. And they took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. 
in the John version, Jesus told them to do that. He said, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. And then Matthew records the detail. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men, beside women and children. So far beyond just the 5,000. I do love, though, that the Lord asks them to gather up the remainder so that nothing would be lost. He's aware of each child of God that needs to eat. He's aware of just how much the miracle was multiplied. And I love that somehow in the Lord's economy, he wants to make sure that no seeds fall by the wayside never to grow. That there's no waste in this miracle that he wants it to be used as much as possible to meet as many needs as possible. It's part of the beauty of sharing things that we have, of allowing other people to partake, of multiplying our own loaves and fishes, whatever, whatever we have. One other detail here that I love. Remember what we saw earlier about how busy the apostles had always been? Oh, always coming and going, toing and froing, without so much leisure, as to eat. Remember that. So these apostles are always hungry. Okay, They're too busy to eat. Another thing, when when Jesus asked them to go inventory the supplies and what's out there, and they come back and they say, only five loaves and two two fishes. And whose were they? This little lads, which lets you know it wasn't just the 5,000 that didn't have any food. The 12 apostles didn't have any food either. And Jesus didn't have any food. Even they, they, and that actually makes sense when you're so devastated that you don't want to eat. You've lost your appetite out of sorrow. But it's been a long day of teaching, preaching, healing. I'm sure they're hungry. By now, Jesus and the apostles probably are too. And what amazes me is when did the apostles themselves finally get to eat? When they were feeding everyone else. Maybe one cure for compassion fatigue is giving more compassion. I know that doesn't make sense. And I know there's a contrary to proof. Don't get me wrong. But if the Lord really does multiply loaves and fishes, and if I have nothing to give, but then I find myself giving and it somehow comes, and by the end of the experience, I'm less tired than I was before. I'm more filled with the spirit of what I was able to do. Again, the math doesn't matter, but God doesn't care about math. There's only one book in Scripture called Numbers, okay? Uh, He can multiply things. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out on your 90% more than you could ever do with 100. He causes the sun and moon to stand still so you can get more work done in the time that you have. It's amazing what He can do. And in the process, we are blessed with the things that we need that we didn't have means to provide for ourselves. My wife actually told me this once. Uh, It was beautiful. Our second child had some skin problems after birth and kind of cracking skin on the feet. And my wife would always have to rub lotion onto this infant's feet just to kind of keep him more comfortable, soothed. And what's interesting is how busy she was. Our first was only... 16 months old, when our number two was born. And a toddler just running around trying to take care of child number one and child number two, which was more colicky and needed more help and cracked feet. And 
And there was no time for self-care for my wife. And one of the things that she had missed or wanted was to be able to use lotion on her own hands because her hands always seem to be cracking with doing dishes and changing diapers and, and all these kinds of things. And it dawned on, on her one day. She actually ended up writing like a personal essay on this and she called it Soft Hands. We still use that title as a reminder of the lesson that she taught us both at that time. Realizing when she had no time to put lotion on her hands, but carving out time to make sure she was putting lotion on our baby's feet. Well, guess who ended up getting lotion on her own hands as a result? You see the lesson? You see what happens when you lose yourself and end up finding yourself as a result? The apostles finally got to eat when they were feeding others. They finally got soft hands and providing lotion for those that were in need themselves. This is such a beautiful principle. Just like the principle I mentioned earlier of this boy willing to give his all. Because remember, again, they're small fish, and I don't know how big the barley loaves were, but even if he ate that, I bet, you know, a hungry boy that's been out wandering through the wilderness all day, I bet he could down five loaves and two fishes himself. I mean, he brought it for himself. But that's still a finite amount. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet. So I wonder about this boy. Was he among the multitudes that when the apostles came by and said, hey, you're the one that started this whole thing. You're the one that contributed your all. Eat some more. Trust me, we got plenty of leftovers. Eat some more. And he's just like, oh, I'm stuffed. I couldn't eat. I've never eaten that much. Which means he ended up with more than what he gave also. And that's consecration. I think sometimes we fear the law of consecration because we think, wait, if I give my all and only get back what I need, I'm going to lose something. Not when the Lord himself joins the consecration. Because he has all things and a rising tide lifts all boats, every single one of them. I love that this boy who gave his all got more back in return. Lost himself, found himself. Apostles, lost himself, themselves, found themselves. And then one last principle about this that I actually learned from my Uncle Mike uh, that I love, because as a teacher of Scripture, and he's one of the best teachers of Scripture I've ever known, he pointed out that Scripture seems finite, as far as its text. That's all we've got on this page is oh, five chapters and two verses. Okay, But when you're sitting before a classroom with infinite need, and so many of those needs you don't even know, if you can combine the needs of your students with the blessings of God, then the Lord will take a finite amount of text and multiply those insights until they meet every need. Oh, and don't think that you're done with your scripture study. Because, yeah, there's still 12 baskets left over. <laughs> there's still enough. Because you're going to get hungry tomorrow. And we'll see this in just a moment. As miraculous as this moment is, give us this day our daily bread. Then that's this miracle bread from heaven. But it just covers today's needs. You're going to be hungry tomorrow. And sure enough, they were. Even after a powerful day of scripture study, your soul will still hunger for more. So keep feeding it. There's still 12 baskets full. 
even if you've gone through an unshaken lesson and it feels like we've milked every verse that took long enough, talk about the time being far spent. Come back. Reread. In fact, read on your own after you've listened to this. Or read beforehand, before you even start to, to push play. And I'm sure that you will find things I've missed. Often when I have time to read your comments, I, I'm learning things I missed. And you amazing scriptorians are teaching me, offering your loaves and fishes. And they just keep multiplying. It's such a powerful principle. There, there's more layer after layer after layer, basket after basket after basket of insight into scripture, of blessings from God, of compassion welling up within us, sufficient to meet every need. But now their needs have been met, and the time is far spent, and everyone's feeling filled spiritually as well as temporally, and so what does Jesus do? Back to Matthew 14, verse 22. Straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. Like, you guys have had a long day. I know mine's been longer, but I'm not saying anything. You guys just go ahead and get in your boat. You take off. I'll, I'll clean up the mess. You guys were kind enough to aid with the distribution. That was a lot of walking through all these camp companies and camps of 50s and 100s. You're the ones who've been lugging around basketfuls of, of leftovers. So, yeah, I'll take it from here. I'll, I'll, I'll do the dishes. Okay? I'll send away the multitude. And when he had sent the multitudes away... He went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. <sighs> Jesus finally got some alone time. Finally got what he had come to get. What he'd been hoping for all along. That, that, that time will come. Even if it had to get postponed a while. He knew it. And he took advantage of it as soon as the opportunity came. And what did he do? He went to commune with God, climbed a mountain, and recharged in the best imaginable way. Then again, there was another reason why he needed to go pray. And this we get from the John version. And we're really going to start shifting to John in a moment, but notice this detail. John 6, verse 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they're so blown away by... This guy made bread out of practically nothing. This is, this is like... I mean, the closest thing I can think of is, is manna from heaven. Mm, keep that in the back of your mind. They saw this and they said, Ah, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Remember that prophet? That's the one that Moses is talking about. That's exactly what they're referring to. Moses said, there will someday be a prophet that comes among you like unto me. Remember, that's the confusion over John the Baptist. Are you that prophet? They, they re resurrect that confusion at the death of John, right? And Herod's like, is this that prophet? Who is this guy? Jesus. Well, this has got to be that guy. This has got to be Moses 2.0. And they're thinking that. Now, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So it wasn't just to recharge. It was to, to steer clear of the clamoring crowds that weren't asking, them, asking him to feed them anymore. He'd done that. But asking him to rule over them. Be our king. Forget Herod the Tetrarch. We want you, 
Jesus, King of the Jews. Moses led us to a promised land. You can lead us back into the promises God made here. Freedom from Rome. Deliverance from our captors. Deliverance from poverty. You can make food out of like nothing. Well, next to nothing. Isn't that what politicians are supposed to make promises about? A chicken in every pot? It's the economy, stupid. And, and Jesus, the riches of his grace. Can we be your campaign manager? You're our write-in candidate. And we want you to win the election right now. In some ways, no wonder Jesus is sending the disciples away. I don't want you to be part of this. It has to be me to deny this and say, that's not what I'm here for. He's going to do that really clearly the next day. Okay? But in this moment, let's disperse. I'm going to leave. Or maybe let's talk about this tomorrow. Maybe that's what he's doing. It's like it's been a long day for, for all of us. Now, you're not hungry anymore, but you're probably tired. So why don't you sleep on it? And I'm just going to withdraw as well. And they're probably assuming you know, he's probably going to go sleep on it too. Maybe he's going to sleep with sweet dreams of a crown upon his brow. King of Israel. But no, it's a sleepless night for him. He has better things to do than rest physically. He wants spiritual rest, which is a fullness of God's glory. So he goes up to the mountaintop, prays, communes with heaven, and reconnects. Now, next scene, John 6, verse 16. When even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea, just like Jesus had told them to, and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Let's go back to our kind of headquarters in the Galilee area. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. Okay, so far, that's not the end of the world. It's just dark on the, on the sea. But these are fishermen, at least four of them are. And so we can handle this. We know how to get to Capernaum from here. Well, the story doesn't end. The sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. Oh, great. Another storm at sea? And unlike the first one, Jesus is not in the back of the boat. Ah, there's no one to wake up and ask if he cares that we perish. I don't even know if he knows that we're out here perishing. He's back on land. He's up on a mountaintop. How oh, great. And once again, we see a bunch of sailors outside their comfort zone. Afraid to death of, are we going to be able to make it? The sea is arising. The wind is blowing. It's a great wind. It's worse than that. Now, this is one of those occasions where you get a lot of help from various gospel writers. So let's combine Matthew and Mark and John. Luke, for some reason, doesn't talk about this one. Don't know why. But Mark 6, verse 47. When even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. So we're seeing the separation there, and it's out in the midst of the sea. It's, it's far enough from land that it's not just an easy, let's just get off, off the boat and hunker down to get this to live out this storm, wait to wait it out. Back to Matthew account. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. So the wind contrary, it's blowing against them. They, these guys are, have you ever tried to swim upstream? It's hard. I did that once in the Columbia River. Uh, and I, my goal was to get like 10 yards. There was like a dock and then another dock. And I'm like, if I run and sprint and swim upstream, can I get from this dock to the next? 
and I was freestyle swimming. I, I thought I was like Michael Phelps. I was, I'd never swum so hard in my life. And I felt like I was making incredible progress. And then when I moved my head to look for, uh, to get a breath of air, I'd see the land and it was like creeping inch by inch by inch. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. It is hard. I did eventually, but it was exhausting. These apostles trying to row against the wind and Jesus isn't even with us. Does it feel that sometimes? Does it feel like discipleship occasionally feels like you're being totally countercultural? And I don't even know if Jesus is with me. Am I doing this alone? Am I making any progress? Or is this wasted effort? But notice this detail that only Mark includes. Mark 6, verse 48. And he, Jesus, saw them toiling in rowing. I had such an important detail. This would have been a great distance. Jesus on land, up on the mountain, the apostles out in the midst of the sea. It was dark, but the light of the world can still see us in our darkness. He sees us toiling in rowing. At times when the sea is rough and the winds are against us and we feel totally alone, we cannot think that we are unknown to God. We know he's there somewhere watching us, even if he has not yet come to our rescue. That's such an important detail. He sees them. And the toiling is, is a reality too. In fact, if you keep reading in that Mark verse, it says that he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. We already saw that detail. It's they're go going against the wind. Add this detail from John. They had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs. And that what that detail adds? No, yeah, they're toiling and rowing all right. 25 to 30 furlongs. If you do the math, that's about three and a half miles. And we'll see in a moment that it's almost sunup. And so they've been at this all night because it was even when they went. Can you imagine rowing a boat against the wind for maybe nine or ten hours and you've only gone three and a half miles? In the, among the early pioneers, there were certain days in Iowa. Iowa was supposed to be quick. Just cross the state and then we're on to the Rockies and head off to the, the promised land, the Salt Lake Valley. Iowa was so muddy. It was so rainy. It was so wet. They had to leave Nauvoo so early in the season that the, the, the snow melts and everything's just sinking in the mud up to the axle of your wagon wheels. And there were some days that they worked all day long to try to move and by the time it was nighttime and time to set up camp, they could still see the camp where they spent the night before a mile away. There were some days after an entire day's work, they'd only progressed one mile. This is the nautical equivalent of that. Three and a half miles is about 25 and 30, to 30 furlongs. The Sea of Galilee at its widest point is seven miles wide. So that would only be halfway, and it's no use doing anything from here. What are we doing? Where is Jesus in all of this? Does he, carest he not that we roweth? 
and we're making no progress at all? Does it feel like that sometimes? Well, he's gone that far. It's this late. Jesus is aware. He's watching. And then this glorious detail that we see in several accounts. We'll see it first here in Mark 6, verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, Matthew says the same thing, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them, which is a weird detail there. He would have passed by them? In the Matthew version, Jesus went unto them. In the John version, he drew nigh unto the ship. But either way, we can still hold to Mark's version that no matter how close he came or it looked like he was right coming to them, he still likes like he's going to walk right on past. Huh? What's going on? Does it seem that way sometimes that Jesus is close, but he's going to pass me by? His blessings seem to be intended for somebody else. Or does he come close and seem to keep on walking because he wants to see what we want to do. Are we willing to ask him to help us? Or are we just going to accuse him of ignoring us when really we're kind of ignoring him? If you see him close, then bridge the gap. If he's coming to you, come the rest of the way. If he's walking by, don't let him. (laughs) Ask him, please abide with me, tis eventide. Don't keep walking on the road to Emmaus. Stay here in Emmaus with us, please. So those disciples did at the end of his ministry. And these apostles, what will they do? We'll see in a moment what they'll do. But in this moment, they're going to be confused. They're going to be absolutely exhausted. It's dark, but is it starting to glow a little bit on the eastern horizon? Because as the point was made by both Matthew and Mark, it is the fourth watch. Now, again, Uncle Mike, I owe him for this insight, and many of you, this is a very famous talk that he gave about the fourth watch. So many of you are probably familiar with this insight from Mike Wilcox as well. But if you take the 12 hours of night, roughly, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and divide it into four chunks, each of those is a watch. And if you're a military man, then you take the first watch, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, They all sound rough to me. But the fourth watch would be roughly 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And if the apostles, like I said, started rowing at even when they went down to the boat, and three and a half miles in maybe nine or ten hours, toiling in rowing, the wind was contrary. The the, the, The sea had risen forget compassion fatigue. Now I've got back fatigue and arm fatigue and leg fatigue and I'm just spent. And where is Jesus in all of this? As Uncle Mike points out, we, ours is the Lord of the fourth watch. He usually likes to come back at the end of the fourth quarter. Oh, the games are more exciting that way. Come on. He's the type that sends a pillar of light to a young Joseph Smith at his moment of greatest alarm. Right when he was about to give himself up to some real, not imaginary, destruction. He's the type that sends an Elijah to multiply a barrel of meal when the widow of Zarephath was down to her very last handful. 
He's the Lord that comes to earth the very night that the unbelievers were threatening the believing Nephites with death if Jesus didn't come. Talk about saved by the bell. Talk about coming in at the very last second. We do have a Lord of the fourth watch, but he's watching. I think that's part of the, the word there that we need to hold on to. It's a watch after all. And Jesus has been seeing them toiling in their rowing. If he still hasn't come to your rescue yet, maybe there's a few more furlongs for you to row. Maybe it's going to get a little darker before it starts to dawn. But with the coming of the dawn, that's the beauty of the fourth watch. When does it end? With sun up. With the coming of the Son of God. He's come He's walking close. He's walking near. He's starting to pass. Wait, 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 wait. Don't. No, please don't. Don't leave me. Please stay. Come unto me. You're just starting to notice something in the dawning hours. Just, But rubbing your eyes, this can't possibly be. Because we left Jesus on the land. And here we are in the midst of the sea. And nobody can come out. They can't swim out this far. Let alone rise above the surf. Who is this? In Matthew 14, verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Yeah, you think? John says they were afraid. That's probably even more accurate. So they were saying, it is a spirit. It's some kind of ghost. That's all it could be. And they cried out for fear. But straightway, or immediately, as Mark puts it, Jesus spake unto them. In Mark's version, he talked with them. And saith unto them. So it wasn't just this one word. It was like, this, let's have a conversation. What are you guys, hey, what are you guys doing in there? Uh, you haven't let the 12 baskets of, of loaves and fishes get wet, have you? I, mean, I don't know what the conversation would be. It's kind of odd that anything, conversation is passing at all. But he's talking with them. And then specifically, what did he say? Beautiful phrase. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And in some ways, you take the first phrase and the third phrase. And how can, you, how can you do that? By focusing on the second phrase. When he says, be of good cheer. Are you kidding me? Do you see how exhausted I am? When he says, be not afraid. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm talking to a ghost in the middle of uh, the sea that's about to swallow me up. Yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah, there's no cheer here. I'm a little frustrated. I'm tired, okay? then what's the solution? What brings cheer and dispels fear? It's the recognition that it is I. And it's him. It's Jesus. By the way, if you were to look at that phrase, it is I in the Greek, it's just two words. It is I is three words. It's good English. But in the Greek, it's just two words that says, I am. I am. Later, when Jesus is about to get stoned for saying before Abraham was, I am, guess what words he uses? Same, same ones. Or if you look to the Septuagint, which remember is the Greek version of the Old Testament, so Greek-speaking Hellenized Jews could read their scriptures in their language. If you go to the Septuagint version of 
the burning bush story, when the Lord speaks to Moses and Moses asks, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. Guess what two words that is in the Greek? The same two. So it's not just, hey, it's me, Jesus. Everything's okay. So cheer up. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm here. It's more cosmic than that. Don't be afraid. Cheer up. I am is here. That same I am that created heaven and earth, whose voice spoke as the Spirit moved upon the face of the great deep. Remember, water in creation represents chaos. And it's pretty chaotic there on the Sea of Galilee for these poor apostles. And yet God sees and God speaks and God calms and God creates because God is. He is. I am. For the King of creation, the Lord of the cosmos, to rise up above the chaos and come to you even as that chaos threatens to swallow you up and to reassure us with his existence, his divine identity. Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. You better believe it. The master of ocean and earth and skies has walked on the water to come to your rescue. Now, is that possible? We've seen Jesus do a lot. We just saw him multiply loaves and fishes. He's obviously in control of the elements. But somebody like a Peter and, or, and his brother Andrew, or their partners, James and John, men who grew up on this lake and never saw anyone walk on it, is this possible? I mean, honestly, when I was at the Sea of Galilee uh, with, as part of the Jerusalem Center, and it's such a beautiful place, and we had enough, we, we saw so many sights, and it was amazing, but we also had some downtime where we just swim and have fun, and there were even some, not in our group, but there were some Israelis that lived there that had a boat and would water ski. And man, we were so tempted to ask, is there any way that we could like just take a quick turn water skiing because that will be the closest we ever come to walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, they're just rising above it, okay? It's not supposed to be able to support my weight. We've come up with some ways to do it. The apostles didn't know of any, okay? <laughs> but to see Jesus and Peter and bless his soul for being the one to do it, looking out through the darkness, trying to adjust his eyes. Could it possibly be him? Peter then asks this question, or makes this request, I should say. Matthew 14, verse 28. And this is only found in the Matthew version, which is odd, because Mark most likely got his accounts for the Gospels from Peter. Remember this kind of backstory? And so if Mark didn't include it, Peter must not have told him about it. Matthew was there on the boat with everybody else, and so he remembers this and he sees, but the fact that Matthew would include it and Mark would not suggest that Peter didn't bring it up, which suggests his incredible humility. I'm not trying to call attention to myself. I'm trying to call attention to the Lord. But notice what Peter says in the Matthew account. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, 
bid me come unto thee on the water. Through most of my years of studying this and most of my years of teaching it, I've often asked students to explain the story. And they do a great job of Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking out to meet him and then Peter starting to sink and Jesus saves him and we'll see all of that play by play in just a moment. But I think the assumption for most of us is Jesus told Peter to come on out. Because sometimes I've asked, whose idea was that? And like I said, the assumption, maybe Jesus is testing Peter's faith. And so it's like, Peter, come and join me. You can do this too. And Peter's like, oh, okay, I'm going to try. But it wasn't Jesus' idea. And that's what blows me away about this part of the story. It was Peter's idea. And it comes in the context of him wondering, could it really be the Lord? When the Lord says, I am, it is I, I'm the one. Really? It's hard to see through the waves and the dark. And, and that's what Peter's wondering. If it really is you. Ah, I know how I can come to recognize the Lord. The Lord of the fourth watch. The king of creation. The watcher whenever we toil in rowing. The light that shines through darkness, how can I know it's him? I've got an idea. I will ask him to command me to do the impossible. And then he'll make it possible. Because that's what he's been doing ever since I left my nets and followed him. How do we come to know the Lord? Lord, Call on me to repent. Command me to change. Send me on a mission. Extend a calling that I'm totally inadequate to perform. Ask me to walk on the water. And then help me do it. Then I'll know it was you all along. I am so amazed by Peter here. This is a Peter moment. This is not Simon. Simon will come up in just a few seconds, but right now it is rock. And it's not a rock that sinks. It's a rock that floats. It's a rock that rises above the water because it's going to come to the rock of Israel himself. These two rocks meeting above the waves. This is so... Your physics teacher is having fits about this. But But your religion teacher is eating it up. This is how it works, okay? And Peter... You can make me do the impossible. And in the process, I'll come to know you. That's how we come to know the Lord. As we see him magnifying us to do things we never could do on our own. Well, the fact it was Peter's idea suggests, well, it wasn't Jesus's. And so I wonder how this struck Jesus. Like, wait, what? You (laughs) You want to come? You want me to tell you to come? Hmm. Wow, Peter, I'm impressed. I know I can do this, but... I am the master of ocean, earth, and skies. (laughs) I am, I am. You're not. But I like the idea. So, verse 29, he said, come. And with that one word, command, Peter responded. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, and can you imagine what this would look like? I know they filmed, they made a scene of this in, in the, a recent Chosen episode, which they did an amazing job of it. But I sometimes even prefer just what I can come up with my own mind's eye. 
of him coming down? Did he back over the edge? Did he p- p- go out frontwards? Did, was he holding on to other people? Was he trying to brace himself with the oars? I don't know. But for him to come down, gingerly put his foot on the water and start pushing down, how much buoyancy was there? How deep did the foot have to go before, before it held his body weight? I have no idea. This is like the Jewish tradition of, of Moses entering the Red Sea and it getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, actually, it wasn't Moses. It was, according to Jewish tradition, it was this other man from the tribe of Judah. But getting deeper and deeper until it went up to his nostrils. And right before, talk about God of the fourth watch, right before it was going to submerge him, that's when the Red Sea parted. Again, that's Jewish tradition. We don't see that in Exodus, but uh, knowing God is possible. Remember the book of Joshua. The Jordan River didn't stop until they, the priests got their feet wet. How wet were Peter's feet? Up to his ankles, up to his calves, up to his knees? I have no idea. But with faith, he starts to come. He was come down out of the ship. And he walked on the water to go to Jesus. What will you do to go to Jesus? Will you tear apart a roof and lower yourself down? Will you brave a multitude? Will you extend your hand to its uttermost reach just in hopes of brushing up against the hem of his garment? Will you get out of a boat with all of its safety nets and plunge out into the darkness, trusting the light will come? Will you come down and walk on water to go to Jesus? It's worth the trip. Now, this is where the plot thickens. And when Peter gives way to Simon. It's hard to maintain Peter faith permanently. In the book of Acts, he will wait for that. But here, verse 30, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And how can you blame him? What am I doing out here? And beginning to sink. And I don't know if this is a quick drop into the deep or a slow descent. Either way, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? (laughs) Interesting time for a lesson on faith. After Peter seemed to pass it so well, he made it out there. If by any chance, and I doubt this happened, but if by any chance James and John, or maybe it's Andrew, because it's always your punk brother that's going to say stuff, right? Andrew kind of snickering like, <laughs> little faith. And Peter looking back, at least I made it out this far. Easy for you to say from the safety of the boat, Andrew. No, Peter walked on water. Simon started to sink. And part of the reason why is he took his eyes off the Lord and started to see the wind boisterous. I've wondered, is the sea still? How intense is this storm? 
is Jesus rising up and down? Is he surfing down the waves? Is he is, is the water splashing up to his waist or above and he's kind of walking at the same depth level? I don't know. How's it working for Peter? He comes out, starts to sink, cries out. In fact, the word he uses is interesting. Lord, save me. Because, you know, the phrase, save us, please, we beseech thee, we beg thee, come to our rescue. You know how you say that in Hebrew? Hosanna. When we get to the triumphal entry, and the people are waving their palm branches and laying out their clothing and shouting, Hosanna. They're saying, please, Lord, save us. Now, theirs is more about praise than about petition. It's more about adoration than desperation. But it's the same kind of language. Now, there's probably other more frantic ways of saying this than Hosanna. (laughs) And Peter is definitely not like rejoicing in what's happening to me. But it does make me think of him throwing out his palm branch desperately, hoping that the King of Kings, the Son of David, will grab a hold of it and lift him back to safety. That is our Hosanna shout. It is praise, but it is also, please, please, I can't save myself. I, I want to say it was Sister Holland in a talk once, and I, she might have lear- may have learned this from Ann Madsen. Fuzzy memory. I forgot this until just now. But somebody asked, why did Peter start to sink? And the answer was, he was walking on water until he remembered that he didn't know how. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden the rationalism overcomes the spirituality. It's like, wait a minute, this is impossible. I do remember my high school physics class. I can't float on my feet in water. And then he's down in the deep. Now we have to remember that this is the Lord that commands us to do the impossible and then makes the impossible possible. Jairus' daughter, right? Be not afraid, only believe. I am and I'm here. This is such a magnificent experience, but it's one that reminds us that, man, the Lord is serious about faith. Instead of congratulating him for having the faith to make it out there, the Lord gently chides Peter for lacking the faith to finish the trip back. Oh, little faith. What? I had enough to get here. I know, finish the job. Uh, have Have the faith to see it through to fulfillment. Endure to the end of this journey outside the boat. And the other question, wherefore didst thou doubt? How could you doubt when you knew you were doing it? Let faith from your past propel you into faith into your future. In my own home, I've mentioned this before, but when I reached 20 years of teaching in church education, uh, as a kind gift, they let us choose a, a painting or just something to remind us of the last 20 years of our career. At the time, I picked, I picked a painting that at the time was as appropriate as anything I could find. And it was the picture of this moment when Jesus saves Peter. Because I was sinking with 
family challenges and mental and physical health challenges and financial problems and I was going under. But I knew who could save me. And I knew how immediately he would come if I called. Jesus didn't let Peter sink all the way down. Jesus didn't dive in and swim down to get him. He didn't send a great fish to swallow him up and spit him out on the, on the shore. He reached down and caught him. I guess Peter was close enough to Jesus for him to be able to do that. Thankfully, I was close enough to Jesus to know he was there to help me. That he was watching me, toiling and rowing. And that he was breaking the laws of physics to come to my rescue. He did. And so hanging on my wall is my favorite depiction of that. There's so many beautiful paintings and depictions of this scene. But the one I love so much is from Peter's view. Usually the painter is on the boat somewhere, or, I don't know, walking on the water himself, so he can see from a different angle and see the boat and the, the two figures there in the, in the water. But this one, it shows Jesus from below. It shows Jesus above the water with Peter under the water. And you are Peter in this painting. As you look up to see Jesus' hand pierce the waves, reaching out to you. It's up to us as Simons to reach back to him and grab hold. I know what it feels like to be Peter. I bet we all do at different times of our life. So cry out with a little bit of help and a lot of Hosanna, knowing that the Lord has come to your rescue. At certain times in our life, this just might be the most important story in all of Scripture for us to lay a hold of. Jesus then gets back to the boat. And years ago, Elder Bednar gave an amazing training to seminary and teachers around the world and talked about getting out of the boat. And the boat was our lesson plan. And having it all set, and I've got it all known, it's like, it's like writing a talk for, for sacrament meeting, and you have everything spelled out, and I don't even have to look at the people, I can just read and overcome some of my anxiety. And Elder Bednar's point was, that's great. You'll make a lot of great progress. You can do a lot of good things in the boat. Boats are important. But the real miracle will come for your students the moment they make some kind of a comment that leads you out of the boat, like, uh-oh, you're leading me away from my precious lesson plan. And Elder Bednar's counsel to us all was be willing to go there, to step out of your prior preparation, trusting that the water, the living water, will hold you and let you get where you need to go with those students. I love that analogy. One thing I thought of afterwards, though, because I worry that some of my teachers would overswing the pendulum and go, wow, if the miracles happen outside the boat, we should just like start, we should cross the Galilee on, on our feet all the time. Who needs a lesson plan? Why prepare? Just have a prayer in your heart. It's going to save me a lot of, t of prep time and just go with it. And when the students come in, like, hey, what do you guys want to talk about today? Like, yeah. And it struck me, this is the part that Elder Bednar didn't explain, that yes, the miracle happened coming outside the boat, but what did Jesus do once the miracle was performed? He got back in the boat. There's still the need to prepare, okay? But it did make me wonder, I wonder what that looked like of Jesus getting back in the boat. We have no idea. It just says that they were come, 
Well, you can see it in Matthew 14, verse 32. When they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. In John's version, it's even more miraculous. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went, which is kind of cool. Uh, maybe this is onto the, the uh, water skiing analogy. Because as soon as they got in the boat, immediately they were there. It's like Jesus gets in, is like, hit it, and they're off and running. Okay? There's something, that's part of the miracle too. It took us nine hours to get three and a half miles. And the second you step foot into the boat, we're there. We've reached the destination. Well, yeah, the destination was me, not Capernaum. And once I'm with you, you're, you're right where you need to be. Anything geographic is beside the point. So, yeah, immediately you're, you're where you need to be. But this idea of they were come into the ship, the wind ceases, they get to the point. But how did they come? I've always kind of laughed to myself wondering, did Jesus like pick, like lift Peter all the way up and put his arm around him and like, okay, ready? Baby steps, we can do this. And they walked back. Or did Jesus just kind of like hold him? He's up out of the water, his head's up there, his arm, and he just kind of drag him through the waves. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, you little, little faith. But a lot of more faith than they had. And we're, we're getting there. Well, let's, let's talk more about faith once we dry off a bit, shall we? Oh, the Lord has amazing lessons to teach here. And we have amazing lessons to learn. But one of them is who Jesus is, who he's always been. Because in the next verse, Matthew 14, verse 33, once the wind is, has ceased, it says that then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. You really are, I am, just like you said. Of a truth, that's the case. We are worshipping. Here's a different form of Hosanna. And boy, do we mean it. Mark adds this. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. And how could you not? This is a marvelous work and a wonder after all. But notice what Mark adds. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Which is really tragic. Why, why are you so shocked that I can walk on water? This is like Nathaniel when he's like, wait, how on earth did you know that I was under the fig tree? That's crazy. And Jesus is like rolling his eyes going, you thought that was amazing? That's like, that's nothing compared to what you're about to see. And so similarly, why would it be so amazing that I can control the element of water? When I just proved it to you, I can control all the elements that go into bread and fish. I've been breaking the law of physics left and right today. Okay? Why would your heart be so hardened not to know who I am and what I can do for you? Oh, ye of little faith. I worry sometimes that those words are meant for me. Anytime I doubt what the Lord is able to do. Anytime I worry that he's not watching me row, that he won't catch me when I sink, that there's no way he can get me to walk on water to come to him. May, my, may our hearts not be hardened. May we consider the miracles we've already seen. That was just a few hours ago. I mean, all the calories you've burned, I'm sure you're hungry again. <laughs> you brought the leftovers, right? But I think if we do more considering of miracles past, we'll have more faith for miracles future. 
Mark then includes this, verse 53 of chapter 6. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret, which is another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, sometimes the Sea of Gennesaret. And they drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, they as in the multitudes that are always around, and ran through that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. So unfortunately for Jesus and the disciples, that's a pretty abrupt end of the story of that miracle of the walking on the water. It's incredible interlude. With, finally, that's really when you get the 13 of them. Okay, uh, this is the, You want to be solitary, then you're going to have to go out in the middle of a storm and let Jesus walk on water to find you. There's solitary for you. Is it recharging your batteries? Because as soon as we get to the other side, it's back to work, back to compassion, back to teaching, preaching, healing, and they're coming from everywhere to do it. Now, in Mark 6, verse 56, this is where the plot starts to thicken. Whithersoever he entered, into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment, Matthew's version says the hem of his garment. Ring any bells, woman who dared? And as many as touched him were made whole. In fact, made perfectly whole, if you ask Matthew. This is some amazing stuff. But what Matthew and Mark have not told us is a conversation that took place right on the heels of the miracles we've just been studying. Matthew and Mark are ready to move on to other stories and Jesus is healing more and he's blessing more and people come from everywhere and all it takes is just touch the hem of his... This is amazing stuff. That's... We're on to other things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John... Hmm, John pauses here and gives us one of the longest chapters in his book for us to savor the aftermath of these stories. Because what has just happened as far as John is concerned... This Jesus multiplied food. He fed the multitudes in an impossible way. Sound? And it went, in fact, it was bread and it was protein. There was fish too. Does that sound like the, the children of Israel? Remember 12 apostles, 12 baskets, 12 tribes, arrange them in order, sit down on the grass. This is Moses 2.0. He really is that prophet. Right? This is why the multitudes want him to be their king. We want you to be our Moses. So he's given us manna and quail. <laughs> manna every morning, quail coming. Ah, we just had, we had our own manna quail experience. And then the other one was walking on water. Well, what did Moses do that's similar to that? He crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, the ground wasn't dry because there was no ground. It was, it was walking on the water, but still he was able to cross without getting too wet. It wasn't submerged anyway. So who is this? This is Moses 2.0. And if that's what the people have been hoping for and ready to crown Jesus king as a result, then what's going to happen when they find Jesus on the other side and can finally catch back up to him? This is Moses in more ways than one. And this is where John pivots and gives us the rest of chapter 6, which is the bread of life discourse. It's a masterpiece. But to see it in context of what Jesus did the night before, in multiplying loaves and fishes, 
and then trying to kind of escape their adoration. It's really interesting how he does it. You remember, I mean, this is the opposite of what we saw in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus proclaims, I am the king. I am the Messiah. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then he talks about some other things, and they're ready to take him to the edge of the, of the town of Nazareth and to shove him off a cliff to kill him for his blasphemy. In the flip side, in the John 6 version, they're so amazed by what he's done. They want to make him king. And so in the first instance, Jesus somehow just passes through the midst of them to avoid being their victim. But in John, somehow he passes through the midst of them to avoid becoming their king. Interesting to put those, to juxtapose those two. Apostles, you go. I'll catch up. I kind of want it to, I want the people to assume I'm still here. They saw you leave and they saw me stay. So they're going to assume I'm still here. And then they're all going to crash that night, kind of fat and happy after a full meal of bread and, and fish. I'm just going to sneak away up into the mountain, pray. Don't worry, I'll have one eye on God and one eye on you. And then in the darkness, during the fourth watch, when everyone's fast asleep, I will tiptoe my way through the slumbering multitudes and slip off into the surf to come to you. By the time we get to Capernaum, the next day, they won't have any idea where I am. And hopefully we can avoid this whole crown me king thing, because that's not the kind of king I've come to be. And yet notice what happens. John chapter 6, verse 22. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereunto his, his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone? Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. I mean, th this whole thing is confusing to them. They're like, wait a minute, where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? It's morning time, and where are those other 12 baskets? And I'm hungry again, and I want to learn more and be healed more and be fed more. And let's get this messianic kingdom underway. Because this guy's obviously the Messiah. Anyone seen him? And it's like, oh, I saw the, guy, the apostles leave. There were, there were no other boats. Now there's some, but this was after the fact. And so I, I have no idea. In verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So let's jump into as many boats. I mean, this might have been a whole flotilla if there's 5,000 people coming. But however many there are that can fit, they come to Capernaum because that's usually where they'll find Jesus. That's kind of his base camp. So they go and they seek for him. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, well, at least it's not king yet, but it's still master, rabbi, teacher, when camest thou hither? And more than just when, it's like, how? Now, glad they didn't ask the how. They would have been even more amazed than ever. They just asked the when. When did you come? And in verse 26, Jesus answered them, but he didn't answer their question. He answered his own and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So it's not even that you're sign-seeking. That's bad enough. 
it's that you, you're coming for treats. And if they say the proof is in the pudding, it's one thing to want the proof. It's another thing to demand the pudding. And that's what they're after. It's so interesting what Jesus is perceiving among them. You no longer need proof. You've seen the science. And so that's not what you're asking for. You're not asking for me to multiply loaves and fishes again to confirm that I'm the Messiah. You're asking me to multiply loaves and fishes again so you don't have to go grow your own grain, barley or wheat. Catch your own fish, small or large. Look around for lads with extra food to share. You want me just to give it to you. No, that's not why I came. He says in the very next verse, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. In some ways, this is the food equivalent of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Remember for her? Oh, if you asked me, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water and I'd give it to you and you'd never thirst again. And she's like, that sounds awesome. You know how many trips to the well that would save me? And he's, that's not what I mean. Metaphorically, living water. Here's the bread of life. And this is the bread of life discourse. I just gave you bread. And already you're hungry again. We're going to have to find something a little more filling. And that would be the bread of life. Eat what I give you. You'll never hunger again. And again, are they going to take it too literally? Sounds awesome. The everlasting gobstopper? Isn't that what Willy Wonka offered? You'll never run out. But if that's all you want to save you the work of having to earn wages to be able to feed yourselves, then we have a bigger problem here than mere sign-seeking. You're looking for convenience. And I'm still haunted by, by what happened on a convenient day for King Herod. No, I need you to labor. I need you to sow seed on good ground. I need you to separate tares from wheat. I need you to nourish mustard seeds. I need you to knead the dough and add in the leaven. I need you to labor to find the field with the treasure in it or sell what you've already earned to be able to afford a pearl of great price. We're going to cast in nets and bring in the fish why do you think I let my apostles toil in row, rowing for nine hours? I need strong backs. Because <laughs> we got work to do. If there's a danger when the Lord gives us a fish. We want him to keep giving us fish. And he wants to teach us to be fishers of men. A good friend of mine, wonderful soul. We, he and I were just talking last night. He works for the State Department. And was asking what I was preparing for. And I said, oh, there's always a lesson in, in the works. And when we were talking about the bread of life, he said, you know, it was interesting. I can't remember what country he was in at the time. But working for the State Department in a foreign nation. And it's like, hey, the Americans, they got endless, endlessly deep pockets. And why aren't you giving more humanitarian aid to our country? And he said it was a real struggle. Because on the one hand, people are in poverty and they do need assistance. And the U.S. government does an amazing job of multiplying loaves and fishes for people in need all around the world. 
But this good friend of mine said, but there's a struggle of at what point are we doing them more harm than good? Because then they're not developing self-sufficiency. Honestly, that's the great difference between church welfare and government welfare. Because church welfare, again, how many loaves and fishes do you have? What's your inventory? Let's start here and then grow out. And we're trying to help you wean you off of us so that then you can be a productive member of society and contribute to the church to help other people. Whereas too often, sadly, with government welfare, it's like, ah, oh, my needs are being met, and so I'll just kind of stay on the dole for the rest of my life and never get ahead, never get on my, on my feet. And so this friend was saying, I was racking my brain trying to think of a scriptural story of when instead of meeting people's needs, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to. And he said, and that's when the story of the Bread of Life discourse came out. And the Spirit said, oh, yeah, this is, here's a good example for you. Because Jesus, who just gave them enough to fill them the day before, adamantly refuses to the day following. So, wait, 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 is this bad cop, good cop, bad cop? What are you doing? Oh, I caught you a fish. I hope you enjoyed the taste, because now I want you to learn how to catch them. Okay, And so there is this really interesting balance. And as parents, we have to do both with our children. We have to figure that out, how to do that as far as society is concerned. Uh, and the Lord is sometimes doing that with us by not answering us in the earlier watches of the night. Okay, Thank you, good friend of mine, Carrington, for, for teaching me this. But then notice what the Lord then teaches from here on out. Verse 28 and 29, Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Now in those two verses, we start to see the dialogue go back and forth. And Jesus says one thing, and the people say something back, and then Jesus responds to them. And the dialogue is going to go back and forth and back and forth for the rest of the chapter. Okay? Now, what Jesus has said to start this is like, no, that's not why you're coming. You want more food, and the food's going to go bad. I don't know how long those 12 baskets are going to last, okay, of leftovers. It actually reminds me of my youngest daughter. We call her the expiration date Nazi because she's constantly looking through the pantry and the fridge like, no, that's expired, that's expired. It, sometimes we'll even make the food, and she's like, did you check the expiration date before you started cooking? Uh, whatever was in there got burned out. Okay, it's fine. Eat, eat your dinner. And that's, in some ways, these are, are the opposites. It's Jesus that's concerned about the expiration date. The kind of stuff you want me to give you won't last long enough. So take the real food, the real bread of life. They respond, and it's an interesting, well, fine. Well, what are we supposed to do? What shall we do so we can work those works of God? If you don't want to multiply loaves and fishes, that's fine. Can you teach us how to do it? Because, man, if I can just start with a little and turn it into a lot, awesome then I can do it myself. And it's like, ah, you're, you're still missing the point. I'm glad you're starting to see that there's some work for you to do, but it's not doing it that way. You're going to have a slower process to go through because you're going to have to grow up in God. Okay. But while you're asking about your works and what works you should do, I love the Lord's response. This is the work of God that ye believe on him that sent me. Now we're back to John 5, right? He just performs an amazing miracle with the man at the pool of Bethesda. They're pushing back and 
No, what proof do you have that you're the Son of God? And like, how many witnesses do you need? What you need to do is believe. Believe the Father's witness of the Son. And here he's getting back to that. Believe in me. Exercise faith. That will be your work. It's actually really interesting how he ties that together. We know the famous verse in John that faith without works is dead. This one puts an interesting twist on it, that your faith is one of the works that's required of you. Exercise your faith. Sound like work? Believe. Okay? Then verse 30, it's their turn to respond. And again, we're going back and forth. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? To which I'm just dumbfounded and want to say, Are you serious? What sign? You just saw the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Maybe he should have told them about the walking on the water. I mean, they, my whole... Mm. Whew, calm down. Okay, count to ten. You picture Peter really biting his lip. What signs do I... So maybe you are sign-seeking and not just treat-seeking. But they did have one in mind. They said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Ah, so we were right to draw these parallels to Moses. They had, and their immediate thought was, of course, this is that prophet like unto Moses. He can do what Moses does. He can multiply food. He can give us manna from heaven. So start the process. Bring it on. Put a chicken in every pot or a quail or a fish. But give us some food. And they even quote a scripture. For as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Sounds a lot like Lucifer coming back to quote scripture in the context of changing stones into bread. It's a stone heart. Speaking of their hearts were hardened, despite the fact they'd just seen the miracle. If it was bad enough for the apostles to do it, it's even worse the, the, the degree to which these would-be disciples have. And they are would-be disciples. They've been following Jesus everywhere he goes. To be healed, to be taught, to be fed. Oh, when it boils down to that, and I'm only looking for temporal blessings, and that's what's motivating me to do the works of God, am I only doing that? It's like missionaries that serve because like, hey, it's going to help me get a good job because I might learn a foreign language and I'll develop some personal, interpersonal skills and it's going to be great for my bottom line eventually. Yeah, those are additional blessings, but if that's why you're going, then no, you're seeking your life. Prepare to lose it. The better way is to lose your life and then surprisingly end up finding it. So careful about this Moses connection. And I don't care about you quoting scripture. I'm the one that told that to Moses to begin with. So Jesus responds, his turn, verse 32 and 33. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses, since you brought him up, gave you not that bread from heaven. He didn't give you the kind I was talking about. He didn't give you that bread from heaven. But my Father, capital F as usual, giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of life is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Again, he couldn't have made it any more obvious when he sent me to Bethlehem, house of bread, to be born. So look to that bread. Look to the Father who is giving it to you. 
Remember the connections between father and son in chapter 5. These are now connections between father and son in chapter 6. Remember the purpose of John. One of his is this high Christology. This is John soaring on eagle's wings. This is Jesus, the everlasting son of the eternal father. And he's drawing these parallels, these connections, as often as he can. So people, disciples, forget Moses 1.0 and the physical bread he offered. Look to Moses 2.0 that the Father has sent, not just with the bread of life, but as the bread of life. If you can eat that, you'll never hunger again. Well, now it's their turn to respond. Verse 34 and 35, Then said they unto him, Ah, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Are you not getting this? He that cometh to me, there's the work, shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me, there's the faith, shall never thirst. So this is getting as close to the woman at the well as you possibly can. He's really parallel, paralleling these things. Never hunger, never thirst. Eat the bread, drink the water, partake of the fruit. It's better, and the nice thing about fruit is it's both. Fruit is both food and water, juice. It brings it all together. Fruit can quench your thirst as well as fill your stomach. And, and that's the, the tree of life that the Father has shed upon the earth in sending forth his Son, for he so loved the world. Okay? So far, so good. Well, not for the people, because what does the Lord say to them in verse 36? But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, that's good, and believe not, that's not good. Some people say, oh, seeing is believing. That, you've proved that incorrect, because you've seen me and you still don't believe. You've seen my miracles and still don't believe. So seeing is not believing. But the flip side is true. Believing is seeing. He goes on, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So if you come to me, and I'm with the Father, you're coming to the Father. I'm doing the Father's will. His will is for me to come to you. His will is for you to come to me. I'm not doing it my way. I'm doing it His way. In fact, let me define what the will of the Father is. Look at verse 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me. Here's another one. That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's the Father's ultimate will. It's, it's that I come and bring his plan of salvation to full fruition. It's to accomplish his work. When he asked, whom shall I send? And I said, here am I, send me. This is what I was volunteering, volunteering to do. To bring everyone home. But to do that, it's a lifetime of proving contraries. It's a lifetime of balancing justice and mercy. It's a lifetime of being able to discern wisely between catching fish and teaching fishers. Of trying to balance the short term with the long term. And at times when I am focused on your long term, you might hate me in the short term. I know what that's like as a dad. 
because I'm intensely focused on the long-term results for my children. They don't always like that in the short term. And that's been the case among these disciples of Jesus. If you look at verse 41, here's their response. The Jews then murmured at him. So it's not just Jesus as Moses 2.0. It's the Jews as Israel 2.0, because that's all they ever seemed to do in the wilderness was murmur, 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 murmur. The Jews murmured because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, wait a minute, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Oh, we're back to this again. No man is prophet in his own country. And let me guess, you know all my brothers and my sisters and you think you know me. But you don't. I know who I am. I am that I am. And you have to believe in me. Otherwise, talk about suffering from just a myopic, close-minded, this-life-only kind of vision. The light of the world has come to give you true sight and an eternal perspective that we have to trust in him. In verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. I can hear that, all you laymans and lemuels out there. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. See, that's the Father's homing beacon. The Father, we saw this in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Father striking the cord of truth and light and spirit and word and goodness and Jesus. And if this, the light of Christ within us starts to resonate with that resonant frequency, then we come closer to God and the Father introduces us to the covenant. The covenant is in Christ. So that's what the Father is trying to do. Draw us to him by drawing us to his Son. Bring us to the Savior. Then in verse 45, the Lord starts quoting scripture. It is, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. That's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to teach you, the real lessons here. And sometimes they're, they're hard, it's a hard tuition to pay. He says, Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So think about the kinds of questions that the Lord is planting for these people. What have you seen? What have you seen me do? What have you read about me in Scripture? What have you felt as the Father has confirmed truth in your soul? Do you have any idea who I am and who sent me and what he's trying to do? Verse 48, let me make it crystal clear. I am that bread of life. Yes, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but where are they now? They are dead. I mean, this is, he's being very blunt here. Your fathers ate the manna for 40 years. They're not around anymore. And sadly, by spoon-feeding them manna every morning, they couldn't even do it right. They kept gathering too much and it would rot, or they'd, they wouldn't get up early enough to get it and then it would melt, or they'd, they'd wait for the Sabbath and it wasn't provided that day because you were supposed to do a double portion the day before. Your fathers, ah, it was hard to put up with them. 
yes, I do feel like Moses 2.0 now because it was hard for him and it's, mm, it's trying my patience too. But when all is said and done, not only did they keep murmuring in the short term, they died in the long term. Remember, wander, wander, die, wander, die. Were, were they learning what they needed to know, to know in the long term? The Lord's going to do it different this time. So no manna every morning. They, your fathers ate it, they're dead. This, as in me, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Again, let me make this crystal clear. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And then, combining clarity with, with symbolism, he says, And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Ah, now he's hinting at next year's Passover. When Passover becomes Last Supper, becomes First Sacrament. And the bread that Jesus breaks is in memory of the body that is about to be broken. Jesus is getting closer and closer to being clearer and clearer about who he is and what he's come to do. But the people can't handle that. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, not just murmuring, but now almost fighting about these things, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And again, you picture a divine face palm, just like he did with Nicodemus, like, no, I'm not asking you to go back into your mother's womb. I'm not, I'm not suggesting cannibalism here. Do you really not have eyes to see? I'm starting to rethink about teaching all those parables because you don't evidently have ears to hear. Please think through the symbol to what I'm actually trying to explain. He explains it himself in verse 53. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. We'll even add that level, which is going to be even more concerning for Jews since you're not supposed to drink blood at, at all. Well, you're going to do this kind. If you don't, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. You see, you are what you eat. And so if you consume me, then I'm a part of you. Partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Eat the bread of life. Drink the living water. This is a true sacramental meal where two become one. At one mint is what it's all about. And so partaking of this, these sacramental emblems, partaking, ingesting, metabolizing, becoming one, that's what the Lord is offering us. And then one more recap in verse 57 and 58. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he's alive and I live by him. Sound like oneness? Sound like communion there? Well, in the same way, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. I'm asking you to connect with me the way I connect with the Father. To live off of one another, to live in one another, to live through one another. True sacramental relationship. 
This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. How many times do I have to say it? This is how we do it. One with Christ, even as Christ is one with the Father. Partake of me. Let me in. I'll change you. Well, how are they going to respond? Look at verse 59 and 60. And this really is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. And if it's the synagogue, picture that's the seat of Moses. And here's Moses 2.0, come to fulfill the law. But many therefore of his disciples, and that's what they were, following him around, crisscrossing the Galilee area, wanting to be close. But many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, Ah, wait, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? You, you mean to tell me you're not the kind of Messiah we've been waiting for? Because I'm starting to worry if it's not, not only no more manna and no more quail, does that mean no more parting Red Seas? Does that mean no more conquering enemies? Does that mean no more bringing us into the promised land as we see it? Does this mean you're not going to free us from Rome? What do you think we've been waiting for? What kind of a Messiah do you claim to be? Well, not that kind. I am here to free you from sin, not from Roman soldiers. I'm here to Break the yoke of religious formalism, not the yoke of Roman taxes. I'm here to give you a different yoke, one that's easy and the burden is light, but there's still work to do and part of your work is to have faith in me. And all the patience that that faith requires. As you go through a hard life, under the Roman thumb, because I'm here to free you from a, a far scarier taskmaster. But no, I'm not that kind of Messiah. No wonder the disciples reacted this way. A hard saying, who can hear it? My wife and I quote this all the time when we ask the kids to do something they don't want to do, and they're like, oh, this, uh, clean my room, are you kidding? This doesn't happen anymore, but when they were little. And sometimes we kind of wink to each other and said, a hard saying, who can hear it? Well, they're still hard sayings. And sometimes we wait every six months to recover from the last one, to brace ourselves to hear another. And when prophets and apostles take the stand, do they sometimes give us some hard sayings? Whether it's hard to live up to, or hard to hold on to, or hard to maintain in the face of society that doesn't believe those things. Is it a hard saying when the prophet says, keep rowing against the current, keep swimming upstream. Are these hard sayings? And I don't want to hear them. Well, notice what the Lord says next. Verse 61 and 62 sometimes strike us as a little odd. When Jesus knew in himself, so this is just perception as he's so good at, this is discernment. When he knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? 
And then the part that sometimes confuses us. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Now, what does he mean by that? It makes sense, the first part. Is this, does this offend you? Is this saying so hard that you're now offended and you're not going to follow? Just He's asking too much of us and he's not promising us enough in return. No treats this time. And worse than that, no political freedom from Rome. I want a full stomach and he's promised me a full soul. I want deliverance from Rome and he's promising deliverance from Satan. I, no, get me away from Caesar. Offends, it's offensive, huh? Well, what if, what if you see the Son of Man ascend up to God, where he came from? And I think what the Lord is hinting at there is, it's only a matter of time, give it a year, and I'll return to my Father in heaven. I will ascend back to God, and what if, when I leave, it looks like nothing has changed down here below? That, I think, is what he's getting at. What if the Messiah has come and gone, and your temporal circumstances seem to be the same as they were before? What if you join the church and all your temporal problems don't disappear the way you thought they would? What if you change your life and turn it all over to the Lord and you're still not healed of that mortal malady? Again, what if the situation on the ground hasn't changed? Well, what kind of ground am I trying to change? It's the, it's the soil within the soul as I dig and dung and weed and water. Nothing might be different on the outside, but everything can be different on the inside. And that's what Jesus is after. President Benson taught this. The world works from the outside in. The Lord works from the inside out. And in the next 12 months, as we prepare for next year's Passover. Will you be willing to change in the ways I'm trying to change you? Or is this just too hard? And now you're offended. Well, what the Lord says next, verse 63 to 65, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh ah, profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. Oh, we're getting even closer to Judas now. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. Throughout the whole process, this is spiritual over temporal. This is heaven over earth. This is afterlife over this life. This is spirit over body. Who's going to believe or are you just waiting for me to do all your work? Jesus knows already, but life gives us a chance to prove things to ourselves. And what are we really made of and what are we really after? Will it be spiritual things or temporal things? Then verse 66, and to me this is one of the saddest verses in all the standard works. From that time, that moment, that realization that, wait, he's not my kind of Messiah. He wants me to do it his way instead of him doing it my way. From that time, 
many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. You're not the kind of Christ that we've been waiting for. So forget it. It was a good couple months. Or an amazing day yesterday. But that's it. Talk about proving Christ's point. That the temporal bread that he had just miraculously provided from one day before had already already been digested and was no longer having any effect. President Irene once said that great faith has a short shelf life. And we just saw that. Just yesterday, 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, were ready to crown him king, that were clamoring to be with him even when he was trying to get away. And now, 24 hours later, forget it. And they wander back to their old lives, sowing their own seeds, eating barley bread, wishing there were something better to feast upon. They could have had it. It could have been theirs. It was. I feel for those who have joined the church and then left it. I feel for those who tasted something glorious and then for whatever reason became offended. Offended by other people that were getting in the way. Offended by the blessings not coming the way that they had expected. Offended by... Humanity, when they wanted divinity, offended, offended that things haven't changed as much as they'd hoped. And to walk no more with him. They still have lives ahead. We still have almost, well, 40 years until the Romans come and practically destroy the Jewish nation. I wonder about some old timers when the Romans were on their way I wonder about them thinking back to a day in their youth, for example, where miracles seem to be happening all around them, and that for a time, I followed Jesus. And life was good, and good news always seemed to be present, and things were exciting, and I saw things that left me marveling and wondering. Yeah, I still hear that there's things like that happening off in those Christian communities. And Peter and James and John and Philip and Andrew or some new guy, Paul. Still amazing things happening. People changing their lives, giving up old hopes, exchanging them for new ones. Could have been me. I just wonder about that regret. And people who caught fire and joined the church and then settled into lives of inactivity and just wonder what life could have been like if they hadn't been offended, hadn't gone back, hadn't decided to walk no more with Jesus. Many of us are on the front end of that decision. And what's offending me? Or... What assumptions did I have? And the Lord saying, that was a false assumption. Here's who I really am and what I'm really asking of you. And so much of that is 
asking you to work harder and have more faith and and not giving easy answers all the time to you who's asking or even prophets who are trying to lead and they're trying and they're struggling and mistakes are made and and there's messiness in church history and there's it's the Lord trying to let people grow up in God it's letting Peter's perform miraculous works walking on water and letting Simon's sink on occasion and expecting big things of them too. But what a tragedy to walk no more because of what what you're going to miss out on from that moment forward. The Lord then says in verse 67, to me one of the most vulnerable questions he ever asks. We'll see another one that's more collective to us all when we get to Luke chapter 18. This one is targeted at the twelve themselves. And in verse 67, then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Can you sense his heartbreak? Because he cared about all those five thousand. He looked upon them as a sheep, as sheep not having a shepherd, and he was their good shepherd. He knew it. It would have been hard for him not to keep multiplying loaves and fishes if the thought of making things a little harder was going to scare them away. I think that's our struggle as parents or as friends. If I lean any more towards justice, I'm just going to scare people off. I have to lower the expectations because if I raise them, then no one's going to come. And do we do that sometimes in our quorums and classes? Do we sometimes do that with our own children? Or are we? God is a God of high expectations. He asks us to come unto him on the water and then helps us walk on it. But we have to get out of the boat. He's a God of long-term consequences. Not just short-term ones. And so to his twelve, is this too much for you too? You've been with me for what now? Two years, give or take? Am I demanding too much of you? Waiting for the fourth watch? Was that a straw that broke your back? If it's starting to dawn on you that I told you this when I sent you out, why is the serpents harmless as doves? Sheep in the midst of wolves? Don't worry about those that only kill the body. Worry about those that kill the soul. Do you realize what you've signed up for? Are you still signing up for it? Or have these hard sayings, have they gotten too hard? And will you be offended too? I've sometimes tried to paint this picture to my students, imagining a general conference session where President Nelson is there at the stand and he's giving his final message at the end of general conference. And he starts saying sayings that are harder and harder than anything we'd expected. And it's separating wheat from tares. It's, time, it's go time, and this is what needs to happen. And, and you thought we were countercultural before. You ain't seen nothing yet. And, and getting some real hard sayings to the point that we're all kind of looking at each other like, is he serious? Are we really being asked to live this way at this level of discipleship? And there, as President Nelson is talking, giving these hard sayings, Imagine the darkness of the conference center being pierced by a shaft of light that comes in almost horizontal. And you you turn around to realize that the door has opened 
to leave the conference center and because someone just walked out. But before the light shaft even has time to close, because the door doesn't have time to close, someone else has walked through it. And pretty soon more and more. And have you ever heard the sound of those of seats, like in a movie theater or at the conference center? And when somebody gets up and the seat flips back into the upright position, to hear the sound of that happening by the tens and by the hundreds and by the thousands as the multitudes begin to get up and stream out of the conference center as people are saints disciples are murmuring one to another that's he's just taking it too far he's asking too much of us why can't we just fit into the world and go with the flow but these standards, these commandments from God, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm offended, and I will walk no more. Until the conference center is practically empty. And it's dark again because the doors have all closed because everybody's already left. Imagine if President Nelson, standing there in shocked disbelief, kind of dumbfounded, stupefied, and instead of looking out at the congregation that's no longer present, he looks to his sides at those sitting on the big red chairs and wonders what their plan is. Imagine him asking them, will ye also go away? You who are my closest disciples. Maybe we're still in a seat somewhere. And he looks out at us and asks the same question. You going to stick around? Or was this saying too hard for you too? And it's then that Simon Peter shifts his center of gravity back from Simon to Peter. He's ready to walk on water again. And he says in verse 68, And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe, in fact, more than that, we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Yeah, you might not be this Christ, the one that people were hoping for, some easy, cheap grace. It's kind of slide into salvation, not have to do anything. To be able to be freed from Rome and have easy lives with manna every morning. No, you might not be the kind of Christ that they were hoping for, but thou art that Christ, the one God intended to send as his only begotten Son. Thou art the Son of the living God. Thou hast the words of eternal life. Yes, those words include some hard sayings now and then. But far harder would not to have those would be not to have those sayings at all. And just wondering where to go without the light of the world. We'll listen to anything you have to say. Hard sayings and all. Because you're the only one whose sayings are worth anything. I mean, to be honest, 
to whom shall we go? We already left our nets. Poor Matthew has no receipt of, receipt of custom to go back to. We've all put our hand to the plow, and there's no looking back. <laughs> I'm not qualified for anything else. I can't, I can't be a fisher anymore now that I've tasted what it feels like to be a fisher of men. There is something magnificent about that question and that statement. Oh, no wonder Peter will be the rock against whom the gates of hell themselves can't prevail. It's amazing who he's become. Now, there's others not quite like him, even among that group, at least one anyway, in verse 70 and 71. And it's odd that the chapter ends with this, but it's almost this note of foreboding and forewarning to kind of check us before we just end on this beautiful note of Peter's faith. In 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. <laughs> Ouch. He spake of Judas Iscariot, of course, the son of Simon, a different Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And like I said, that's a strange way to end the chapter. That makes you wonder, was Judas right on the edge? Was he more like the multitudes than his 11 colleagues in the quorum? Was he kind of hoping for a military messiah? There's some suggestions of that when he brings an army to go arrest Jesus. Was he trying to incite a messianic battle? Hard to tell. We don't know what was in his heart, but Jesus did, and he considered it devilish. What he's looking for is to cast the devil out of all of us and allow the spirit of his Father to take its place, a spirit that confirms that the Father sent the Son out of love for us to be able to come home to them both. If we could then end not as Jesus, not as John did, but as, as Peter did on a note of testimony, a note of assurance. My friends, do we believe? Are we sure that Jesus is the Christ? The one that the Father intended? Are we willing to endure hard sayings knowing that they come from the Word made flesh himself? In some ways, have we seen clearly enough what God is offering us in his kingdom? To look around outside its borders and wonder, where else would I go? Why would I leave what I have when no one else has anything good to take its place? At least not good enough <laughs> to understand what the Lord has promised us. I, I get a sense of this from people, from African Americans, for example, or those of African descent who joined the church pre-1978 as people wondered, well, why would you join that church? You can't have priesthood. And many literally responding, well, since there's no other church with priesthood, then I wouldn't get the priesthood anywhere else anyway. So, although I don't understand this, and believe me, this is a 
It's more than a hard saying. This is an excruciating one. But I will... I'll stay. I'll come. I'll trust. I'll wait. Because to whom shall I go? This is where I have found the words of eternal life. Uncle Mike pointed this one out. The last thing I'll share from him and the last thing I'll say for this week's lesson. It comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. It was one of Uncle Mike's favorite writers. And it comes from the book, The Silver Chair, if I remember correctly. And in it, there's a a story where Jill is in Narnia, but she's a newcomer and doesn't really understand what's going on. And she's dying of thirst, no living water present. And so she goes in search of something because she starts to hear some bubbling, bubbling brook at some point. So she goes in, in search of it and finds it, but unfortunately finds a lion that seems to be guarding the water. Now, she doesn't know who this lion is, but we do by now. This is Aslan, who is the Christ figure in Narnia. She's coming to <laughs> worry. What? Uh, I see, she sees the lion, knows not to mess with it, and so decides that she needs to go somewhere else. Uh, starts to, but she's dying of thirst and it's right there and she kind of starts inching towards it because the lion isn't moving. Maybe, maybe it hasn't seen me yet. But as she gets closer, she just hears this low growl. And oh no, the lion knows. The lion actually speaks and that surprises her until she remembers, oh yeah, I guess animals can speak here. And she starts a conversation with this lion asking... Uh, you, you don't, um, you don't eat little girls, do you? And the lion just looks and says, oh, I have been known to swallow up kingdoms and empires. Oh, okay. Um, will, will you at least promise me not to eat me so I can get a drink of water? And with that same low growl, Aslan simply responds, I make no promises. Desperate for the water. What she ends up saying is, then I I guess I just can't come. I, I don't dare come and drink. And Aslan, knowing what her other options are, says to her, then you'll die. If you don't drink, you'll die. And Jill, with one last hope, says, then I suppose I'll have to find some other stream. The climax of this story is when the lion responds, there is no other stream. This is it. Trust me. Trust this untamed lion that roars out hard sayings left and right, but who also roars down sin and death as sent by his father to do. I testify of the word of hard sayings. I testify of a Christ who rises over chaos. I testify of of him who can come and find us in our Bethesda and raise us through his mercy and grace. I am grateful for living bread, 
and living water and fruit of the tree of life that is indeed sweeter than anything I've tasted anywhere else. I've tried to study other faiths. I've tried to study secularism and rationalism and I've never seen anything as soul-satisfying as the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Where else would I go when I believe and am sure that he is that Christ, the Son of the living God? And in his name I invite us all to come unto him, hard sayings and all. There's no better place in all eternity to be.